All right, here we go. Yeah, I think I think we're live now. We're not going to run the trailer today, everybody. We're just jumping right into it. So welcome to the stream. Michael, how are you doing? I'm still waiting for the stream to start because it says on my screen, we're waiting for please, theory, please. There's a 20 second delay. All right, hold on, here we go. Now we now I got to mute. Yep. yep. All right. It's got to go to space and back. Oh, what a little asshole. Fucking make us wait 20 seconds. Come on, we, we're, we're Americans. We need our instant gratification. <laughs> we got 20 seconds to spare. Accelerate it. <laughs> oh, okay. Delusional so, Bode Lacanian in the chat says, Buenas. Hello, what up? What Yo. up? <laughs> Yo. How's yeah, it going? How you doing? How's it going? Well, everybody... It's been two weeks. How's it going? What's up? What are we doing here? I found a little commodity I uh, I uh, want to mention before we dive back into the lecture. You found a commodity? Yeah. So I always like to try. They always have them up at the grocery store. They'll have new flavors that companies are trying out. So there's a new can of Pepsi called Nitro Pepsi. And it's a big can. It's marketed. It looks like some sort of energy drink, even though I don't think it is. But it, it's like nitrogen infused Pepsi. And on the can, it says smaller bubbles, smoother taste. And I'm like, yeah, OK, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. So I finally tried it right before we started stream or before we got on the phone and I taste it. I sit there for a second. I'm like, let me taste this again. So I taste it again. I give it a second, taste it a third time, and I was like, holy shit, Pepsi. All you did is sell, find a way to sell us flat Pepsi. Oh, no. Flat Pepsi. It tastes exactly what Pepsi. All right, here's the thing. I don't know if you're, you like Coke, you like Pepsi, whatever, but it is objectively true that Coke stays fizzy longer than Pepsi. Pepsi goes flat like that. And so it's like Pepsi's <laughs> like, well... We'll just sell them flat Pepsi, but we can't market it as, hey, um, you want to drink that nasty flat Pepsi that's set out for two hours? We got you. We'll save you those two hours, and we'll sell it to you directly. But they know they can't market it like that, so they're going to go, hey, um, this is nitro-infused Pepsi. That's disgusting. It's so, like, no, seriously, if you, you get a chance, you taste it, you're going to go, this is flat Pepsi. That's like... That's like being like, hey, check out this this exotic coffee. It's just warm coffee. Yuck. Yeah, it's, it's fucking... Oh, God. Or, or like, um, I guess, like, relaxing coffee. Yeah. Coffee that go down without you noticing it. And it's just Ew. room temperature coffee or something. Ugh. I don't know. <laughs> I, if, if my coffee's not the perfect hotness... If it's anything less than that, then I hate it. And so it's got to be just right. And I'm totally picky about it. I just always request super hot and then let it get to the right point. But you've got to... Anyway, all right. All right. This is getting into... We're getting into the weeds about our desires about coffee. I wanted to draw attention to the fact that Brian Weeks is in the chat. C6 is here. Delusional Bodlikanian is here. Says, hey, Mikey and hey, plebe. Super excited for this stream. Brian Weeks says, Mikey... 
What would Lacan have to say about my baby trying to get food by sucking on my nose right now? Oh, I would. Oh, that's that's good. The baby's not trying to get food. The baby's the the oral drive is just getting enjoyment from the stimulation of the mouth. And so this is why babies will suck on their thumbs, right? Like the thumb is. You can say it's a substitute nipple, but it, it really, it, I don't think it's even a substitute so much as it's just the oral drive wants the buildup in the excessive stimulation that comes from the mouth do, sucking, you know, or the the mouth chewing or whatever, the mouth doing what it does. And so what what you're experiencing, Brian, is that the baby, like the ba- human babies don't stay on need. They go into drive which is just the enjoyment of a repetitive activity that builds up excitation in the body. And so, yeah, you're dealing, you're dealing with a little baby death drive. Cute. <laughs> cool. So, uh, the commodity that you, you, you opened with the commodity and, and you alluded okay, to commodity. a lecture, you alluded to an ongoing lecture. Um, how about just for the good of anybody like who's just joining in right now? Now, I think that a lot of people, if you're just joining in right now, they'll probably realize that this is part of an ongoing thing. And if they're interested, then they'll go check it out, right? You know, we're not going to spend the whole time going over everything we've already gone over. But in broad strokes, what have we gone over so far, Michael? Uh, what we are doing in this ongoing series is working our way through the intricacies, details of Slavoj Žižek's theory of ideology and what makes his theory of ideology so unique and so special is how he brings in Lacanian psychoanalysis into the concept of ideology and he also brings in Hegelian dialectics. But for our purposes, we primarily focus on the Lacanian side of things in his work and this is a, a great lead-in. So if you could say, well, you know, I know what ideology is. You know, I study Marxism. I get that ideology plays a key role for understanding how capitalism reproduces itself. This is the, the standard Marxist take, especially with the cultural turn that took place um, post-war era, especially. Hmm. Um so I actually, it's, it's great that you did this because I had two paragraphs I wanted to read because I've said this in some of the other streams, but I don't think I've ever said it this clearly or this succinctly. So why Zizek's theory of ideology? Well, let me read this. What's the big difference between Marx and Zizek on ideology? For Marx, ideology is false consciousness, which means that ideology is a mistake in representation. It's a mistake in how we perceive things in front of us, states of affairs. False consciousness is viewing reality through a certain mistaken conception or representations, which we will say here are misrepresentations. For Zizek, reality itself is ideological. The point being that ideology has a much stronger hold on us than Marx or the Marxists were aware of. When human beings are simply mistaken about something, it's not very difficult to correct their thinking. For example, 
If someone falsely claims that Abraham Lincoln was the 15th president of the United States, then a simple trip to Wikipedia is usually all it would take to get the person to fully accept that Lincoln was actually the 16th president and not the 15th. That was James Buchanan. The person will likely say, oops, my bad, and that'll be it. Mistake corrected, problem solved. But now try to do that with your uncle who just loves the shit out of Fox News. Good fucking luck with that. Why? Because people enjoy their ideology. They are profoundly libidinally invested in it in a way that goes far beyond the simple conceptions or misconceptions they have. This is precisely why class consciousness is so hard to develop. If it were as simple as working class people being mistaken in how they conceptualize or misrepresent their economic slash material conditions, then an international socialist revolution would have happened a long time ago. The point is that they never fundamentally, or I'm sorry, the point is that they fundamentally enjoy capitalist ideology. As Zizek points out, this is why the fight scene in John Carpenter's great film, They Live, goes on for so long. Mm. Ideology is something that you cling to desperately and you, it, it, you like have to get it, it beaten out of you, right? It's not just something, oh yeah, whatever, I give it up. No, it's like somebody has to kick the shit out of you and or kick the shit out of the ideology in you, which is I, this is another reason why Zizek loves Fight Club so much is because he's beating the shit out of himself. Right. Right. And what he's beating out of him is his consumer ideology. So one's ideology is one's default relation to the world. Ideology is one's most basic orientation and spontaneous familiarity with one's social reality. To disrupt a person's ideology is to impose a certain traumatic violence on them, despite the fact that it is also liberating. This is why Zizek says, freedom hurts. People will kill and be killed in order to preserve their ideology. This has everything to do with jouissance, enjoyment, fantasy, and not with simple misconceptions. Simply put, ideology is libidinal and not merely cognitive. So, right, right. It's not just, to, it's not, it's, it's never a matter of like the letter of what's being said. I mean, people can get really fixated on it. And for some, actually for some exceptional people, maybe they actually, they do focus on that. But for, but the point is like, that's almost inseparable from, yeah, and that's a great point from desire. Yeah. No, I, I, no, what you said, like some, some people might actually objectively get fixated on official ideological decrees, right? But Zizek actually has argued many times that the person who takes ideology explicitly serious, that, that it's serious for them at the explicit level of things, and they, they actually over-identify with it, they're the biggest threat to the ideology. Because his whole point is, even outside, he talks about cynical ideology, and we haven't really gotten there. But for Zizek, the proper functioning of ideology actually entails that for ide ideological subjects must keep a certain distance from the ideological symbolic framework, i.e. societies, norms, practices, rules, etc., in order to be a properly functioning ideological subject. So this distance from your, your law, your symbolic order, and your ideology is precisely what helps to reproduce it. If you over identify with it, then you can, then it's like 
you're putting a pressure on the system that it doesn't actually want. Like it's saying, Hey, 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 chill out. Like, you know, like read between the lines, bud. we're not, don't expect me to like actually make good on what, like, you know, you have to keep a certain distance from it. If you over identify with it, you could actually put a burdensome pressure on it to do certain things that it doesn't want you to do. So that's what, where what's what's like i mean do you have an example in mind or an, or like an anecdote that might be a good illustration of the point yeah cause... like if you like Zizek's example was the 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 stalinist subject who actually took i'll put it stalinist ideology absolutely seriously like you know if 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 you're demanding the 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 flourishing of the working class and the flourishing of the proletariat and you're living in Russia and things aren't going that good. Like the whole Stalinist ideology, of course, at the official level, totally celebrates worker revolution, worker international or solidarity, right? Whatever. But at the implicit level of actually existing Stalinist ideology, it's like, don't like, that's not how this works. Don't actually demand that. Mm. So, it's as if, if, like, if you take Marxism-Leninism seriously in the Stalinist context, you're actually defying the Stalinist ideology. Is because the whole point? What, what the whole point is that, and this is we've we've tackled this, but Zizek's whole point is that in an ideological system, you have explicit rules, implicit rules, right. and then. You have the form of enjoyment that is transgressive to that law, to that, that system of rules and norms and practices. And so built into every law, symbolic order, social order, there's the official mandates, there's the implicit ways of bending those mandates or getting around them, and then there's the forms of transgression that actually reproduce the system instead of breaking it apart but there's still forms of transgression they violate the ex explicit rules of the law but they violate them in such a way as to preserve that law that they violate and that's the distance right so okay there's there's the the official decrees and then there's the inherent transgression and that inherent transgression can be said to be an ideological disidentification but that is precisely what keeps the ideological system going. And so if somebody was to actually say, I'm living by the letter of the law, fuck this inherent transgression, fuck these forms of enjoyment that actually go against the official principles, then you are a threat to the ideological system. So what are, what are, so I'm trying to think of like examples of some forms of transgression that's that, maintain okay, okay. So, maintain the system and I'm, I'm like i'm thinking about like euphoria for example and all of these kids are obviously being transgressive in all these different ways but none of those n none of that inherently actually challenges the the system itself no like teenage rebellion is almost a rite of passage and they i mean it is a rite of passage or at least it used to be i again i've told you i have a weird reading of euphoria where i don't I don't think the kids are really representative of Zoomers, right. but that's another thing. Um, at least traditionally, since especially the post-war era, 
we got to remember the whole category of teenager as we know it is a kind of symbolic construction of recent times. It right. was, the teenager really did it really take hold until the 1950s with pop culture and everything like that. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I, obviously, there were people who were that age, of course, but. No, but the, the it became it became yeah. No, yeah, the symbolic identity and and it being a a, a category people used to think about the world is a more recent invention. I don't have a date on it. Does anybody? It was generational identity, the way yeah. we talk about it, right? Like that's, of course, there were differences in generations in the past, but this kind of mechanical, every ten fifteen years, there's a new generational identity or whatever. That's the product of consumer capitalism. That's not. You know, that's not something that has a long historical. Yeah, the idea there. of the the idea of like, you know, uh, millennials and and Gen X and and boomers mm-hmm. and all of this They're stuff. They're all defined in terms of the, the the technology and the commodities they happen to consume, and be libidinally invested in. Right. Yeah, and they and it, and these exist within the context of consumerism, where where each of these like a person's identity in respect to these categories is supposed to say something about the, the what they desire you know mm-hmm. and and those desires right. are being cultivated in specific ways you know so. but here just to, to, to return to the, the point so one of Zizek's well he has two uh, two examples of inherent transgression that he often went to mm. in his early days so one of them is from the film A Few Good Men. Maybe I'll just read this because this is not very long. This is from <clears throat> Metastases of Enjoyment, which is, I think, is fifth or sixth book. Let me pull this up real quick. Salamoon de Costa is in the chat. Wanted to say hi. What's up? Coming at us from Katowice, Poland. Um... I showed I showed the video that he shared with us um, on stream the other day, but there wasn't a lot of people in there. And this is kind of more like going down for the record. I think maybe we'll show it on this stream at some point later. But um, yeah, anyway, I never got to see the video. You didn't see the video. Remember, I told you it wouldn't open it. The, the I didn't get to see it. Oh snap! Because yeah, well, I played it out on stream, but you didn't see it then. Okay, cool. Well, everybody. We've got a treat for you then. It's something really, really cool, but we'll we'll save that for later. So, uh, what were you pulling up? Okay, so uh, one of his great examples of this type of transgression that keeps a symbolic order going, that reproduces it, that that sustains it, is the Rob Reiner film A Few Good Men. Have you ever seen this one? No. Okay, well, this was a big movie back in the... Uh, I'd say early 90s, right? Late 80s, early 90s is one of the the movies that all of our parents had to rent from Blockbuster when it came out. The rest of us kids, we didn't give a shit about it, but uh, it does have a great example of inherent transgression. So this is from um, this is from his book, uh, Zizek's book, Metastases of Enjoyment. And he opens up by saying, well, this is the third chapter, but he opens up by saying, The proper way to approach the theme, psychoanalysis, and the law is to ask, what kind of law is the object of psychoanalysis? 
The answer is, of course, superego. Superego emerges where the law, the public law, the law articulated in public discourse fails, right? So again, we're talking about explicit, implicit rules that are the official mandates and decrees of a social order. But at some point, those fail or they cease to apply, right? They have a limit. But the limit is actually built into this order itself, which is to say there's a place where the official mandates are suspended and something else occurs. But his point is that this something else that occurs where the public official rules fail is super egoic enjoyment or inherent transgression, which it's deceptive, but it actually keeps the social order going, even though it's a rupture within the the social order. And so he says, at this point of failure, the public law is compelled to search for support in an illegal enjoyment. And so the idea is that every law is actually not nearly as innocent as it wants to present itself to be. The law just wants to say, I'm good, I maintain order, I I keep things running, I am concerned with fairness and justice, and without me it'd just be anarchy and chaos. But Zizek's point is that, yeah, fair enough, but every law will also have, it has to, in a sense, reward its subjects. And it rewards them with certain forms of extreme perverse enjoyment that is the dark side of the law, right? And so, Zizek continues, superego is the obscene nightly law that necessarily redoubles and accompanies as its shadow the public law. This inherent and constitutive splitting of the law is the subject of Rob Reiner's film, A Few Good Men. The court martial drama about two Marines accused of murdering one of their fellow soldiers. The military prosecutor claims that the two Marines act as a, wait, oh, I'm sorry. The military prosecutor claims that the two Marines act was a deliberate murder, whereas the defense succeeds in proving that the defendants simply followed the so-called red code, or I'm sorry, code red. That was a weird misreading. Mm. Okay. Uh, which authorizes the clandestine nighttime beating of a fellow soldier who, in the opinion of his peers or superior officer, has broken the ethical code of the Marines. And so, obviously, the official law or code of the Marines would never authorize Marines to beat the shit out of another soldier if they think he's not living up to expectations. But within this system that actually functions, right? And so the function of this code red is extremely interesting. It condones an act of transgression, a legal punishment of a fellow soldier. At the same time, it reaffirms the cohesion of the group. It's like a a guilt or a stain or a sin they all get to share in. And like group cohesion depends on rendering, getting your hands dirty, right? Mm. Partaking of the same enjoyment that the, the group partakes in that is transgressive, illegal, obscene, whatever, right? So it calls for an act of supreme identification with group values, this form of, so it's like, yeah, you can, you can say we all are of the same group because we follow these 
official, ethical, social, political protocols. But to truly be part of the group is to sin or to transgress in the right way. And that's what really makes you a member of the group. So to sin in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Transgression that gives you access to the inner circle of the group. Right. Such a code must remain undercover at night. Unacknowledged, unutterable in public. Everybody pretends to know nothing about it or even actively denies its existence. It represents the spirit of the community at its purest, exerting the strongest pressure on the individual to comply with its mandate of group identification. Yet, simultaneously, it violates the explicit rules of community life. The plight of the two accused soldiers is that they are unable to grasp this exclusion of code red from the big other, the domain of public law. So the big other, as you know, is social authority. It maintains certain norms, practices, customs, etc., that are the official ways that one must behave within the social order, right? But again, the this is where you have this split between the big other, which is part of the official explicit rules of a society, and the superego. Super yeah. Which is the underside of it. So it's like we have two social authorities. They both are at odds with each other. And this battle between them actually only serves the reproduction of the social order as a whole. It doesn't break out of it. So they desperately, uh, these soldiers desperately ask themselves, what did we do wrong since they simply followed the order of the superior officer, played by Jack Nicholson? Where does this splitting of the law into the written public law and its underside, the unwritten obscene secret code, come from? From the incomplete, non-all character of the public law. Explicit public rules do not suffice, so they have to be supplemented by a clandestine unwritten code aimed at those who, although they violate no public rules, maintain a kind of inner distance and do not truly identify with the spirit of the community. So this is an instance where if you keep a distance from this, whatever social orders form of inherent transgression, you're not really an ideological subject, right? I don't don't, don't, don't understand what that means. So wait. Okay, I'm saying to be part of the inner circle, to be part of the group, you have to become close, so to speak. You You have to get your hands dirty in their form of enjoyment that they can't officially identify with, right? There's some form of obscene inherent transgression that you must partake in to be part of the group. So that's where it's like you do have to get close to this aspect of ideology to be an ideological subject. You have to enjoy the way the group enjoys. Mm. But this is where you also... so. But in doing that, you're keeping a so in coming close to the obscene form of enjoyment of the group, you're distancing yourself from the explicit rules. So if you distance yourself from the obscene enjoyment and and say that the official rules must be maintained all the time, then you're threatening the obscene enjoyment that holds the group together. Therefore, you become a threat to the group. Are we allowed to talk about 
the your Jewish sons in the workplace piece because it seems pretty relevant right here. I mean, a little. I I don't know because I'm reworking it, and so look, we, it's not so much the piece; it's just the idea that yes, in a job, it doesn't matter what job. Um, if 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 a workplace has any form of functionality whatsoever. There's ways in which the workers violate the explicit rules of the workplace, but they violate them in such a way as to continue to reproduce the workplace. Right. They don't actually undermine it. They keep it going. And the thing is, if you deprive w workers of whatever form of enjoyment they get out of their day, you make things function worse and worse. So you got to allow people to have, and, and here's the thing, right? Whatever form of enjoyment takes hold in a workplace it's important to note the capitalists ain't doing that like right. all of this occurs outside of the view of the capitalists so this is something workers spontaneously do among themselves and again it maintains a sense of freedom they're sitting there going Haha, right see i'm not just completely locked in to the fucking rules this place imposes on me i'll do this and i'll do that and we'll we'll do all the you know and in transgressing, you're sitting there going, see, I'm free. I'm maintaining a distance right. from the official decrees of this place. But that's where the enjoyment itself is ideological because, yeah, but this sense of freedom actually just is what enables this place to keep reopening every day. <laughs> like, it, so it, that's where our enjoyment in our workspaces actually is ideological. Yeah. Yeah, and ever since I mean, and I, 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 well, the reason I refer to the piece is just because it's on my mind because I just read it pretty recently and I'm stoked about it. But basically, you are developing a a a, a theory of something that a lot of people don't realize when they are thinking about uh, building working class power and uh, the problems with like. Like, like for instance, a person who goes into a workplace and is is from outside of this workplace and just wants to organize the workers, but brings with them their own kinds of, uh, I don't know, ethical sensibilities that they then start forcing down the throats of these workers, it's not going to work. Yeah, and here's the thing, right? Let's make it more specific. If you're a professional, you know, like if you the the PMCs, right? The professional managerial class. The yeah. Talk in those terms, right? Say someone like that goes into a blue collar workspace, like the one I work in, right? They're not going to get anywhere with anybody I work with. And it's not racial. It's not gender based. My, I have, you know, there's black people who work at my, my job. There's gay people. And the fact that they are like, your, your blue collar industrial type of worker, they have a, an edge to them. I don't care their race, their sexual orientation, any of that. And they all, all of them, I don't care if they're Republicans or Democrats, they hate the PC thing. Like they, oh. they all of them. Yeah. They're, right. And so yeah. if somebody walked in there and tried to impose what we think, I, you know, SJW or, uh, politically correct or woke or any of that, all of them, the, the, I don't care if they're gay, <laughs> black, whatever, they all reject it. 
Yeah, no. It's everybody's punchline. It's the butt of every joke. Yeah. It and, and you that, can that's the funny thing, right? Like I, I watch I see Trump supporters sitting there with people who voted for Biden, some who like Bernie. I see them all sit there and they all together will joke about woke stuff, right? They it's a big joke with all of them. And so it's funny to sit there and see this unfold and then you you try to imagine, well, what would it be for like a one of these like liberal leftist professional managerial organ or types to come in and try to organize it would never work. Yeah, it's not at gonna all. happen. Yeah. And and it's not and this is where you see it is a class thing. It's not a racial thing, it's not a gender thing. This is a class thing. And so Yeah, the form of enjoyment the form of enjoyment that unifies everybody is offending these particular people, the people who earned A's, you know, through through school and now lorded over them, at, you know, making, you know, uh, this this uh, making these outrageous salaries. Well, that's right. the thing, right? Like, it's like, no, we get our enjoyment from offending you, you know. Exactly. Like, that's the thing. All of them, you as a, as a group of workers, would all sit there and they would, the mindset would be, we make it where you can go take a shit in public. Like we, we, we're in the distribution business. We, we deliver toilet paper and paper towels and shit like that. Right. Like we're the reason you can take a shit at your university. And then you judge us for being obscene or what politically incorrect or whatever. And those type of workers, they just, they enjoy in a different way. And if somebody was to come in and try to, be an activist or an organizer or whatever. Um, there's such a clash of enjoyment because the organizer is going to trust me. The workers are going to detect real quick that this person places himself above the workers and thinks that they have like a greater insight into morality and ethics and everything. And there is a sense in which there's enjoyment at the workers' expense. So the workers. I'm not saying it's even right, but the workers are going to end up enjoying at this person's expense. And so I'm just saying to get tapped into a group, whether it's right or wrong, like you have to accept groups and I don't care where they are. Groups have dark sides to them is the point. And that, and this is a Baudrillardian point. And he, he makes it about terrorism. He, he to paraphrase, he says, look, the only thing worse, again, paraphrase, the only thing worse than living in a society where there's terrorism is living in a society where there is none. And his whole point is a society would have to be so authoritarian and terroristic itself to be able to make terrorism absolutely impossible. Right. That you wouldn't want to live in that society. So the idea to, to have a group that absolutely has no obscene form of enjoyment would actually be the most obscene form of enjoyment because what you would have to do to have a social order where no one could have any sort of inherent transgression would be so micromanaged and so strict that it would be libidinal in and of itself in how it would maintain order. And so libidinal, Libidinal, in, libidinal in and of itself, in libidinal in and of itself, so as to maintain order. I, 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 I was. Well, it's almost like I was, I was the 
Oh, shit. Well, first of all, I'm going to want you to just expand on that for a second because I was like, well, I think I know what you're talking about. But then I was like, well, shit, if I am thinking that, then a lot of people probably aren't getting it at all. So we'll talk. We'll have to talk about that. But it's windy out here. Like the my my tiny house is shaking right now. And uh, so I can't hear it. It's not coming through. All right. Well, things are banging around. And all, all I'm saying is that the Internet. You guys have tornadoes out there. No, surprisingly, because we have crazy wind. But um, no, I live in Tornado Alley. Oh, you do? Have you seen tornadoes? No, it's weird too. You've never it's been seen a couple one. Years, I think since we've had any tornadoes, and growing up, th- I mean, this was always tornado season. They were like clockwork, and I don't. I mean, it probably climate change. I don't know how somebody would explain it, but we haven't seen tornadoes like we used to. But. Which, which is scary because when one shows up, it'll probably be Jeez. a world record. Well, you just make sure to, you know, catch it on, you do a live stream. Um, I want to see it. I'm out of storage on my phone. You know this. You don't get any footage. Maybe, maybe I'll see this. Maybe I'll see a tornado when I deliver this computer to you. Oh, there's that. So really quick, I wanted to do, before we get back into things, um, yeah, so if the internet crashes, I'm sorry, everybody, and I miss you. Goodbye. But, you know, it could happen at any point, but we'll just have to just keep going like it won't happen. Um, but before we get back into everything, I wanted to let everyone know that this fundraiser for uh, Michael's computer um, is, well, I mean, it's still going on. And it's going really well. And I really wanted to say thank you to everybody who's donated so far. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for my mouse. Hold I want on. To give a huge thank you. On my computer here. Yeah. So we've raised uh, for for Michael's computer seven hundred and forty six dollars and eleven cents. Woohoo! Right? Amazing. That's and someone I... someone with uh, first name David uh, donated twice and it added up to $400. So thank you, David. Um, thank you so much. Also Marilyn for the one fifty. you know, this, the, the interesting thing, the crazy thing about the $746 and 11 cents for your computer, um, is that it came from such a small number of people. It's like eight people. Uh So amazing. Amazing. Thank you, everybody. And And I say it comes from, from from eight people, but one of those people donated one dollar and eleven cents. So really, it came from <laughs> seven people. Yeah. So thank you, everybody. Um, and I'll I'll drop links in the in the chat here in a little bit. Um, so that anybody else who wants to donate here, basically, our buddy Chris is building uh, Michael this epic computer, and then I'm gonna take it to him. Um, in Raytown, Missouri, and maybe Ann will be, you know, maybe Ann gets to go too. Well, I want, we, that's the, that, that's the goal, but we'll see what happens because basically we just you have know, to get, I told you on the phone the other day, I'm like, no, your Ann's vegan ass ain't welcome here. <laughs> yeah, no, Kansas City's not going to put up with oh, no, I love you, Ann. I'm no just vegans. joking. Speaking of, Ann is in the chat um, and is currently catching up, so she's not live. Oh, hey, Ann. She's not caught up live yet, but she's catching up because... Um, she was a little late to the stream because she had a bunch of stuff going on. Look, a lot of people are still just getting in. So welcome. Take your time. We're not in a hurry. 
Um, I know it's not funny when you explain jokes, but just for context, the reason I said that to uh, the joke about Ann being a vegan, I live in Kansas City, which is the barbecue capital of the world. So, right. There you go. And let's be honest, when I'm there, we're going to be going and getting a bunch of barbecue. So, well, yeah, it's like one day we got Arthur Bryant's, next day Gates, next day Jack Stack, then right. Joe's, then we can go Q39, then we can go to LC's. I I felt full for like a couple of weeks after that. We only well, especially like, me like Arthur Bryant's. I've told you Arthur Bryant's is my favorite by far. But Gates is a close second when Gates is good. But no Arthur Bryant's. For those who don't know, Arthur Bryant's is arguably the greatest barbecue restaurant in the world. I certainly think it is. But wow. if you go there and you get food to go, they just wrap up food in paper. And um, a ton of it. What, it's, it's, I don't even know the term for that specific type of paper. But it's kind of like a anyway, wax paper just, or something. Yeah, they but they take a huge handful of fries and huge handful of meat and bread, and they just throw it all together and wrap it up. And uh, Dave got to experience an Arthur Bryant <laughs> meal a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about how the the jouissance of barbecue. Um, mm -hmm. we'll have to get into that if we do this, uh, this stream on the phallus. Well, like one day we might just do a whole thing on food. Cause yeah. I mean, it is, especially Americans. I mean, I don't want to act like we have a monopoly on the enjoyment of food. Of course we don't, no. but there is something that sticks out, especially nowadays about how Americans enjoy or get jouissance through food. And we're talking about yeah. So, all right. Like that's the whole I'm, thing I'm, in New York, right? When they were when when New York was talking about, I don't know if they ever did or not. I don't think they did. But when they were talking about putting limits on how much pop or soda, depending on what part of the country you're from, uh, they were talking about putting limits. Wait, on wait, 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 wait. Which do you say? We say pop. You say pop? Yeah. All right. Soda sounds weird to me. Yeah, we say soda. I, I, I grew up in a family that said pop, but I, I acclimated to a culture that said soda. I definitely never got into that mid Midwestern soda pop shit. Saying soda pop? No. <laughs> mm, yeah. but, but no, so I mean, that, that's the whole thing, right? You're not talking about, you're not limiting their beverage. You're limiting their jouissance. And pop is a huge source of jouissance for Americans. So it's fast food. But the point is, Oh, well, it's bad for them. Yeah, that's why they like it. That's right. what Death Drive is. Like, And this whole, like, there's almost something classist about, oh, look at them with their obscene enjoyment and pop and McDonald's and shit. Yeah, well, you know what? If motherfuckers could afford to eat like Hollywood celebrities, some of them might. But right. when you're broke and your life sucks... Oftentimes, the shitty food you eat is a source of enjoyment, even though it's bad for you. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, if you can so just if you can go into if you can go into Whole Foods and just load up one of those hot plates, it's going to cost you twenty bucks for lunch, uh, without really blinking an, uh, you know an eyelash about it. Then, you know y your your experience is, is well. I don't I don't I don't want to fucking hear about it, right? Like, I, think it's, <laughs> I, well, I don't live as good as I used to. You know this. Okay, I used to eat better, but now that I can't do that, 
when I hear someone like Bill Maher try to lecture working class people about their shitty diets and them being fat and all this shit, like, shut the fuck up, Bill Maher. Like, it's easy for you to be on your fucking high horse doing a new rules about Americans eating poorly. Did he do when this? You fucking ass eat anything you want, whenever you want. You have a personal chef. Like, shut the fuck up. He did that, huh? Oh, he's done it many times. Many times I've seen him do that shit where, like, Americans need to just be more responsible with their food, with the food they eat, and they wouldn't put so much pressure on the healthcare system for being fat. Like, that's where I'm like, yeah, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Yeah. Again, that's where you're so unplugged from any type of Marxist analysis or anything. Like, or, or, I'm sorry, people, I've told you many times, what makes us human is that we, we want to enjoy any talk of just doing what's in our interest, which in Lacanian terms is pursuing pleasure, which I know is confusion, confusing because we're talking about enjoyment, then we start talking about pleasure, and colloquially speaking, they're the exact same thing. In everyday usage, pleasure and enjoyment are synonyms. So we have to realize there's a sharp distinction between enjoyment and pleasure when we're talking in a Freudian-Lacanian context or Zizekian context. And pleasure has to do with doing what's in your rational self-interest, pursuing rational goals, um, maintaining your health, doing what's best for you in the long term, maintaining your stability, ensuring your personal and social security, all this kind of stuff, right? Jouissance is the opposite. It wants to burn all that shit up. It wants to enjoy in the moment. It wants, but also repeat this form of enjoyment. But these two things are part of what it is to be human and to attack like human beings should just restrict themselves to some sort of homeostatic lifestyle. That's all about balance and equilibrium. Sorry, humans want their excess, but at the same time, if all they have is excess, then, you know, it's, that's catastrophe too. And so human beings are strung between these two tendencies, death drive and pleasure principle. And, when you bring class into it, when you, okay, the, yeah, people want their forms of excess. They want something that they gain jouissance from. When you're, when you're broke, fast food or smoking cigarettes or whatever can be a form of enjoyment. And that actually helps you get through your day, even though it causes you problems at the same time. Right. So that's what death drive is. It's like death drive is the enjoyment you get from self-sabotaging yourself. But it's easy for rich people to speak from like the position of pleasure where you need to behave reasonably and take greater personal responsibility and eat healthier meals and make better choices. Go fuck yourself. Now I'm going to fucking supersize this shit. Fuck you. Right. Like I'm just saying that's where these fucking professional moral guides think like, Oh, you're, you know, they're so distant from what the average person's going through that. And then they want to give the average person shit because they said, fuck it. And they want to eat some chicken tender or chicken McNuggets or whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. Like, so fuck you, Bill Maher. I pay, you know, yeah, that's <laughs> right. It's like you fucking liberal elite cocksucker. Fuck you. Um, I was going to go have a fucking, I was going to uh, say like know, part a of a blizzard now. Like I, I want us to, to really drive home for me, well, this has been kind of a, a, a big realization 
um, thinking about the way that jouissance and drive factor into something like this because it's not just that the that someone like Bill Maher um, has more money it's that he's gotten to experience things different kinds of things and and so yeah. so he's gotten to ex in his development in the development of his subjectivity he's gotten to experience a broader a array of opportunities and options for ways uh, that his drive might take hold and that he might develop in a way that where where he doesn't need to do those things to get the same kind of exactly. payoff. His enjoyment can come from, I don't know, fucking models. As I mean, he's known to date models, I guess. So, and I'm not blaming him for that. Hey, you know, knock yourself out. Great. More but power to you, yeah. that's the whole point. Like, I mean, and you almost could get a kind of, uh, like a morality of enjoyment from Christ's words, like fuck, you know, you know, judge yourself before you judge somebody else, right? Like that kind of ethics of, you know, don't 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 be so quick to judge somebody else's jouissance. What's your jouissance? Yeah, and exactly. What is what's the the biblical line like? uh Take the moat from your own eye. I'm drawing a blank on the scripture. Yeah, don't worry about the sliver in, in your brother's eye when you've got a, a log in your own eye, basically. There you go, right? Yeah. Well, you do that, but apply it to jouissance. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that when, when one person sees other people going after somebody's form of jouissance, it's like, uh, you'd come for mine, too. You know, you're not going. You're right. not coming for mine right now, but you would. You know, you you, you right. just so that create the distrust because like, you don't have an ability to mind your own business or live and let live. You know. Now look, okay. Here's the other thing, right? There's other. There are forms of jouissance we just have to oppose. So one example Jack yeah. gives is the kind of racial violence that was part of the organization of a society where the Ku Klux Klan got to run things. Like, nah, there comes a point, yeah, fuck your enjoyment. You don't get to do that to people. The end. And right. absolutely, like, there's, uh, there are the Nazis' form of enjoyment. No, fuck your jouissance. You don't get to have it. But yeah, just because there are these incredibly extreme forms of oppressive, sadistic forms of jouissance, we see those, and then we can have some default, like, oh, all of that needs to go. And the point is, those are extreme examples, and jouissance can always lead to those incredibly destructive outcomes, but it's always going to be with us. And so the it's not an idea of just getting rid of these obscene forms of jouissance. The idea is to have better forms of it. And so this is why death drive to me is such an important concept. It makes it where you go, look, utopia is not going to happen. Human beings have this inherent death drive built into them. They enjoy their own self-sabotage. They enjoy breaking apart the social order, etc. But they also have this other tendency that wants stability and pleasure and equilibrium. And so the point is, is that, there, yes, there are forms of jouissance that we can't tolerate, but we also have to accept that jouissance is going to be with us and to try to eradicate it entirely 
is itself a form of oppression. Like it, it's a way to just drive us insane. Like we have to be able to have some forms of jouissance, some forms of excess self-destruction to be able to reproduce ourselves each day. <laughs> like, right. And I if, mean, and if the okay. utopia and if the utopian planner who says, well, I think it could be otherwise wants to actually make a better world, then you have to like think, okay, so be strategic, pick your battles. Don't, don't take away everybody's opportunities to, uh, to enjoy. Otherwise, there's not going to be that inherent transgression in the system that allows the system to function, right? So you're trying to set right. up a system that's inherently impossible. Now, a person could also say, "Well, you've just snatched, or you, or Zizek, because you're kind of you're 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 presenting the Zizekian position here, but you're just you're at, you're you're speaking." Well, I mean, I'll just own it. I I I I own it. I agree with him on this stuff. Okay, so you've. One could say you've naturalized um, a conservative argument from sin nature, where it goes, well, you know, socialism or communism looks good on paper, but the fact is, is, you know, people, people say they want one thing and they do another, and they're just because they're fallen, and. Um, yeah, but I don't think, I mean, look, I mean, even I'll just Zizek explicitly links. Paul's whole thing about sin and the law and the sin came when the law came and all this kind of stuff from, I believe it's the book of Romans. Zizek does this in particular subject. And I don't know. I just don't have a problem with like, I, and, and, and okay, to stand back for a second, if anything is naturalized, it's the, it's the ontologies of dualism or, the ontologies of, uh, you know, substance. What psychoanalysis is doing is saying that we are split internally. We are split inside of ourselves. And it's not that I am what I am independently from everything else. And then I happen to find something that I end up in having a conflict with. That's dualism. But when you take the dialectical approach or the psychoanalytic approach, you're, you're, arguing for an ontology which is an ontology of things being at odds with themselves like this is why Deleuze and Guattari don't like Hegel Deleuze and Guattari their whole thing with being against negation you want to go well what's the big deal Hegel and Zizek they talk about negation uh Deleuze and Guattari talk about difference well isn't a difference just the negation of one thing juxtaposed to the like they're really, it's far different when it comes to ontology because the whole thing about Hegelian negation, or as McGowan would rather call it contradiction, is that a thing is split within itself, right? Um, whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, they're not going to think of things as internally split, internally at odds with themselves, which is to say things having a negative relationship to themselves. Um, Sure, things can go bad, but for Deleuze and Guattari, it's like a bad encounter. Like, a thing is in the process of becoming, and then it encounters something that stifles it or gets in its way. But it itself is not stifling or getting in its own way. And so when Deleuze and Guattari, you know, when Deleuze says stuff about Hegel on negation or negativity, it's a, there is a really big ontological difference here. And... I don't know. I just, I find myself 
seeing things when I, when I watch states of affairs, I see how things are internally split. So again, this is getting off track, but and I want to get back to the main point of the lecture here, but right. And one of just, the, and one of the things I want to make sure to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to want to touch on chat here in a second, but um, one of the things that I'm going to want to do also is just to have you kind of give us the broad strokes. Where are we going? Ideally tonight, what ground do we seek to cover uh, in, in just like, I don't know, some chapter headers or, um, you know, like, okay, three main things we want to get through tonight. Right. Um, but, but really quick, Deathcon, who's in the chat said, Deathcon was like earlier said, I've been, I've really been looking forward to this stream and then just said, uh, giving up my own juvenile, sexist, transphobic, homophobic jouissance when I was, when I was a notable point of what I, oh, oh yeah, giving up, giving up that form of jouissance was a notable point of what I would call maturity. Is this what people usually mean when we speak of maturity? Um... I mean, I can. I I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think I mean, that I, there, there's a teenager mode of enjoyment that I think people oftentimes move beyond as they mature. It doesn't mean they don't have other forms of enjoyment. They they they, they they're there, but the kind of what we think of as like wild, free spirited, um, teenager oriented enjoyment. Of the, you know that youthful spirit, yeah, I I, I think that, that comes with certain forms of jouissance. Like that, being like being edgy and saying things just to get a rise out of people. Um, yeah, seems yeah. does it does seem immature. It just kind of to me it like all of a sudden I'm like thinking, okay, well, I've got like my theory of of maturity, and now I'm sitting here wanting to like parse through that. But then I'm like, well, that's not what I should be doing this stream. I, I don't I don't know if Zizek has a theory of maturity. Right. I've never seen anything like that. But here's the thing, right? Like, that's why. For, for, for my, for everything I have to say about it in my book or whatever, is just that, you know, one of the big things about maturity is delayed gratification, saying no to your own, you know, saying no to like immediacy, immediate self gratification. And trying to trying to sometimes do otherwise, which would be you know towards this longer term thing, right? And so it's you know talking about the how consumerism keeps us locked into immediate gratification and and a form of immaturity there, where it's like you know adults being immature is ubiquitous, right? And it's just it's just I mean it's arguably a feature of of consumerism, um, and and. You know, I, I think some people might use that, you know, this this talk of oh, you know, to, to to kind of shame poor people, for instance. Oh, well, you know, you haven't pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You could, you need to grow up, mature, delay gratification. But the point, the point of a critique of political economy is to see that, yeah, no one, no one is is doing that, right? No, no one is growing up. Yeah. In in well, in, I mean that that pivots in. So, Deathcon, if if you would like to read something, it's actually not too long of a read that I think is really worth reflecting on. It's uh, a book you love, Dave. Uh, Alain Badu's The True Life. Oh and, yeah! Oh yeah! 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 Well, one of the great things is that he's saying 
in a lot of ways, especially I think he, he argues young men nowadays don't have any rites of passage that mark the transition. There's no rituals they go through that basically installs in them this sense of, okay, I have to, it's almost like St. Paul's words, right? Like, um, I, when I was a child, I thought as a child that I put childish things away. There's no symbolic mechanisms anymore that mark this transitional phase for kids. And, and Badu thinks it's it's true of boys especially. But, yeah, the true life would be something I think you would like. Yeah, it's a great little book. I mean, it's he calls for a new symbolization, and that, so the new symbolization publishing gets its name ultimately from that little book. You know, I've always said it's like Badu's actual philosophy, as in as presented in Being in a Van and Logic of the Worlds. It's never resonate resonated with me very much, but I love his short books. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same. You know. Yeah, I I I don't know what to, I you know if uh, that's just the way it is. I, I've I've tried to read his longer. I'm like I don't know. I don't I don't know. If, I don't I don't know what he's doing. I can't. Well, they're really hard. Let's be honest about that. But. Yeah, yeah. I would have to have okay, somebody. So. I would have to have somebody who's done what you've done with Baudrillard and Zizek uh, and Lacan. I'd have to have someone who's done all of that only with him. You know. Yeah. And, and yeah. You, that it would it would be an amazing feat. That's the thing is to be able to make. But to, to be able to, to do bad do justice would be pretty cool. But anyway, all right. So let's get back on track here. So all right. So here's, it, here's it, what I want. And to actually, I'll with. just. I know we're not going to talk about it tonight, but uh, Zizek gets a ja- a, short, a short a short a sort of critique in against. Yeah, we have to kind of bad do because it it just happened, and so we'll talk about it some other time. But it's so good. It really is so good. But uh, Zizek just had a quote unquote debate with Vivek. Chibber, and uh, it was on the Jacobin YouTube channel, and or it still is, and it's good. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, putting a video out about it soon. Um, I've already talked about it on stream, but Vivek is important, and people need to know about him and what he's doing. Um, but yeah, they both get their digs in at bad doing. I remember uh, when we'd when we'd met uh, Slavoj. Um, I, I think, I don't know. I, I remember we're getting around that he, he had had a falling out with Badu because yeah, he and Badu did. had been getting along and all this. Um, but it, it, apparently like the, the main theoretical disagreement, at least according to that thing was the labor aristocracy and Badu's way of talking about workers in the first world. And, um, Zizek and also uh, Vivek are, are vehemently opposed to this this way of, uh, of doing things or th- seeing things or thinking or conceptualizing or theorizing the working class um, in a way to, to be that, oh, well, you know, first world workers are just not revolutionary because they're so privileged, right? And so a big part of what we're getting at here in Slavoj's, uh, in Zizek's theory of ideology is, is, a, is a more sophisticated um, explanation of some of the main factors that give ideology its sway, you know, in in a way that far far goes beyond whatever's happening at the semantic letter level, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you say that's and fair. so. I mean, I'll just 
briefly, I really love that discussion. Obviously, I'm much more familiar with Zizek than Chibber, but the thing I'll say, like, I, uh, Chibber's words really were moving for me. Like, it, like I really loved what he had to say in a, on a lot of issues pertaining to what's going on on the left. As far as ideology goes, I, I like this. I, I, I've told you, I like this move where it's like working class people are not just complete idiots. You know, the, a lot of what they're doing is in their self-interest. It's not just ideological. Yet at the same time, I think he doesn't. I, I don't think he gets how ideology functions in this libidinal way. Right. That Zizek does. I and, wonder. I wonder if he. I did, he didn't seem to at any point in that conversation um, show signs of really knowing or working with um, Zizek's. He doesn't. I can theory. tell like he doesn't have any of the Zizekian psychoanalytic insights going with ideology. And and yeah. in that conversation, Zizek is just like basically talks some smack about postmodern Marxists and psychoanalysts people who don't think the working class really matters or thinks that it just is, you know, I, 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 I well, I don't think I'd characterize it the way I was about to here, but we're not going to get into it anyway. So we just need to do a stream at some point where we talk about the video. I, and I've, I've been thinking, I've people. been thinking what would be good is that we just play it and pause it and talk about it do a couple of streams do like a, that do a react video yeah do some react you know because theory tube doesn't have react content it doesn't it doesn't really have like live react content or but we could react to clips i guess i mean doing the whole thing with that would be a, a lot because you know how me and you will talk and talk about one thing like that could get really long yeah but, we could just have fun with it but right Right now, I'm just like, okay, so I've got the I've got the camera off. I'm not doing React content. And so I'll, we just wanted to raise awareness for anybody who's in the chat who didn't know about that conversation that just took place, um, that it's good and it's important. But yeah, uh, we're not so sure that Chibber knows exactly what Zizek's up to, and Zizek doesn't exactly defend himself. He just gets really kind of supportive of Chibber's project because he really likes it. But he doesn't really defend him, his own, he doesn't really assert the value of his theory. And so that's one of the things ultimately that you're going to have to do for us, Michael, because, um, oh, great. Cause you know, if, 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 if someone as, as important and sweeping in his work as Chibber is, is missing something that Zizek's doing here, then we'll have to sort of, okay, so what is it and work through it? Well, I told you there's the moment where he's talking about, you know, well, people, in the working class for whatever reason, this, you know, they supported Trump and you can tell he doesn't have any good answers for why that happens. His whole thing is that, yeah, but if you look at their material conditions and you actually take their situation into proper context, you can start to see that there's a certain logic they're operating with that is reasonable given their situation. And so, but but here's the thing, right? Zizek has a much better way of explaining why someone like Trump resonates with people. And it's because of 
the libidinal dynamics at work with figures of the master, right? This is a whole section of this lecture I want to get to, so I don't want to go into it right now. But the point is, is that he, uh, Zizek, I think more fully can explain why someone like Trump can come in to the political scene and have such a, an enormous effect on it the way he did. And I don't think Chibber's framework is really going to be able to do much with it. It's just going to be like, well, yeah, you know, it's going to do basic shit. Like, oh, well, Trump spoke to their interests or what? Like, that's not the actual appeal that he had. And so Lacanian psychoanalysis does a much better job of fully fleshing out. Wait, you cut out. I'm back. Is it back? Are we good? Are you there? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, well, I can hear you now. Oh, okay. Are we back, everybody? I can hear you. Chat, chat. Are we back? We got chat. Hey, you'll have to help remind me where, where we're at in this conversation because I totally, I was just saying something and then I lost it. But Wait I want if, if I don't pivot into like what <laughs> I really have to talk about, we'll do the same. Like we got to. Let me get into the lecture here. All right, Deathcon. Deathcon said still here, and uh, let's just let's jump in because we had the internet drop there for a second. So we'll we'll hopefully get th get into some of the stuff here. Uh, we'll and uh, there's a, there's a question in chat. Why is there chaos and strife in the third world then? Syria, Iraq, etc. Are these places where ideology failed, or is Zizek only talking about consumerist economies? And, uh, well, I mean, look, well, I mean, he's talking about ideology in general. Obviously, he's going to focus on consumerism, but that's just, I mean, that's a huge question that I am not prepared to be able to field with any, uh, accuracy. Um, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, he's, he's, he definitely has mentioned, um, some of the situations in the third world, but like, that's a, that's a big issue that, yeah. I, I wonder. I, I wonder what a non-consumer. I wonder what a non-consumer economy would would be, or, unless we're talking about like, or are we talking about people who live in the woods or the jungle that are like away from, you know, the global economy? Because people who are roped into the global economy, like even at tremendous disadvantage. Um, still participate in consumerism. So I think that, yeah, a lot of, I mean, I would, I would think that inherent transgression is, is, is a, is a factor in every society, but the, the question of, of why there's chaos and strife. I mean, we're, we're talking about capitalism. We're talking about what reproduces capitalism. And I wouldn't say that, you know, uh, that this is a place where ideology has failed. This is more like a place that, where what is what is occurring is allowing ideology to reproduce itself in the ways that it is. I don't know. This is this is uh, nothing that we're talking about is detached from the real. It, it has this relation to the real, and uh, I'm I, I'm bringing in the real now. I'm not even sure if I should I'm be doing saying, that. I think you, here's what, that's a huge question. Like that, a whole book is contained in that question. Yeah, that's a good question. All right, so okay. we're, we're yeah, so let's let's 
All right, so this thing what I want to get into for this stretch of the discussion is just I want to emphasize, and I mean, we already have, right? But for Zizek, what he brings to the table with his theory of ideology, it's also the role that politics plays in enjoyment. And so Zizek's politics, you can say, is a politics of enjoyment or jouissance, and that we cannot properly understand politics and ideology without understanding how jouissance factors into it. And this is why Todd McGowan's new book is basically, it's a book that's solely on the politics of enjoyment. And so even though Zizek has always written about politics from the perspective of jouissance, anybody who reads Zizek knows that he is a very, he, it's like he's free associational in the way he does theory. And so he'll, he'll, he'll talk about political enjoyment and he'll connect it here, and then he'll connect it there. But then he's off talking about movies, and then he just goes right. It's totally. It's it really is like like ADHD writing. If 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 I could get away with writing books like that, I would have a lot of books to you know. I'd be able to put a lot of books out. I imagine, but sure. I, I I don't know. Well, maybe here's I, the thing. Like I've I've emphasized. I think it was in our first lecture. This does not mean that he has a really inconsistent theory. No, I don't think he does. I think it's very cohesive. It's that the way he applies it, you don't like when you know the theory as a whole, or even like almost as a whole, like I've still got stuff to learn about it, of course, but I feel like I have a pretty decent grasp on how it works as a whole. Um, you see what he's doing with all these examples, right? But if you don't know this, the whole, like it's almost, the Hegelian thing, like the truth is the whole, right? Like if you don't have the overarching structure of the, the theory, you don't see how each of these examples are, are fitting into it. And he can't explain the whole theory every time he gives you an example. And so it's it, learning his theory is just this process of going. It's like dialectical. You go from the particular example back to the theory as a whole, the theory as a whole to a particular example. And you just, you keep tearing with that conflict between, okay, I, I know he's talking about this specific example. I don't know what the big theoretical implications of it are. And you just are constantly going back and forth between that. But the great thing about Todd McGowan, even though Todd and Zizek are not like, it's not like Todd just agree. It just simply agrees on every point, but they are also so similar in the framework that they're working in that like they really reading, reading them together has been so helpful for me. And like Zizek can illuminate things that McGowan says, McGowan illuminates things that Zizek says, and it's really, really rewarding to, to read them together. And now and so, you, and now you book. get to illuminate and now you get to illuminate it all for us. Oh, well, yeah. Well, okay. Perfect. <laughs> so, but no, so, so Todd's new book is, uh, the politics of enjoying, or it, it's called enjoying right and left, something mm. like that. And he's already, there is a great video that's on YouTube. I think if you type in enjoying right and left, it's a hour long interview he did. And he's basically giving you the gist of what the book as a whole is going to be about. And what he argues even in this video that you can watch, 
but what he's going to argue in this book is that on the right and on the left, we have two different forms of enjoyment. And he's trying to say that politics as a whole has been organized around the battle or the struggle between these two different forms of enjoyment. And that rightist enjoyment is organized around a particular enemy or, you know, a threatening sublime object as we've just worked out what that means in the other videos. Right. Right. Whereas leftist enjoyment is about enjoyment of the universal lack. So the point is, rightist enjoyment tends to enjoy the scapegoat, right? The particular figure that is obfuscating structural deadlocks. So whenever you start blaming a scapegoat, I don't care if it's the Jews or immigrants, whoever it is, the problem in this is that the real social problems are being caused by the system itself, right? Look, I get it. Like if, if some, if you were living in some ancient little village in a, a brutal conqueror came running, you know, bringing his army to your village and they started raping and pillaging. Obviously, an external enemy is your problem. Like, obviously. But the way that the scapegoat works in modern society is in capitalist society, there's all these structural problems, these contradictions in the Marxist sense that are baked into the system itself. And because that's incredibly complicated and it's dizzying to try to think all of that the scapegoat becomes an easy option because now you can just disregard all of these structural problems and you can pinpoint the root of the problems you're facing on some external foreign intruder a scapegoat and you find that politics has long you find this history of scapegoating in it and it says oh there was like a there was a good time it's, it's, it involves nostalgia. There was a good time before the the alien force came into our society. It's the whole organic community shit. Um, right. And this this scapegoat figure came in, destabilized our society. And if we could get rid of the scapegoat, things would go back to being good. Um, right. Well, okay. So that's one way of doing right. And, and and the two parties currently exist by doing this with one another, and the, the entire media system does. And, yeah. You know, the, that's the the duopoly is upheld by people thinking that it's just the other side. You know, in, in, and that's uh, what you can say is like that. I mean, I, and McGowan makes that argument in in so many terms. In you know, in he's made this argument basically like what we call the left in America. We can just say that. A lot of what is called the left or even what is called straight up what's called the left still has a rightist form of enjoyment uh. that, oh, there's these bad people. And if you get rid of them or the, the Trump supporters, like they're the problem. If you get rid of all of them, then things would be good. Right. Um, and, and then the, the other side does the same thing. Oh, if you get rid of all these woke, woke SJWs and you get rid of the liberals who are destroying our values. And neither side is truly focused on the the structural lack, which would be McGowan, time energy, which is for McGowan. The true, true leftist politics, true leftist organization is geared around the an enjoyment that is that is connected to the structural deadlocks in society. Right. So which is to say it's a, a form of enjoyment that is based on trying to undermine the system as a whole. 
opposed to blaming a particular enemy for what's going on. It's as if, it, you can basically say one focuses on a particular enemy, the other focuses on the general structure. And so, for example, right, there, there is in every social order, symbolic network, whatever we want to call it, a position of non-belonging, which is to say no social order can incorporate everything that is into it. Now, this maybe sounds a little confusing, but the whole point is, I'll use a basic example, because you've been doing these language learning videos. I had a friend of mine tell me that for her, learning Arabic wasn't simply learning a new language. It wasn't simply learning a collection of new words. A brand new world opened up for her in learning Arabic and learning another language. And that, and she was, I wish I had all of these examples. This was years ago, but she was giving me these examples of how you can say things about the world in Arabic that you simply can't say in English. Right. That English is inherently limited. Right. Like there's, there's lacks in it. There's things that it is not able to incorporate or say. And yeah, ways of being. Say what? Ways of being. Sure. We can call it that. And, and at the same side, because she's, you know, grew up speaking English, she sees things in English that you can't say in Arabic. And that always stuck with me where this was like a really great concrete example of saying how like Arabic as a symbolic language and English as symbolic languages, they are both lacking. They both, they both have things that they can do that the other can't do, but they also can't do things the other can do. Right. And for Zizek, this is basically a universal truth about all symbolic orders, uh, matrices of intelligibility, mm -hmm. conceptual frameworks, whatever you want to call them. And so, when, like, for example, when he says there is no big other, what he means is that there is no conceptual framework that is absolutely consistent with itself and can make sense of everything, right? Every symbolic order is inherently limited and inconsistent with itself. And so that's the idea is that every symbolic order necessarily generates its own structures of non-belonging. Basically, there's things that cannot belong within this social framework. Now, some of those things can be made to belong to society, but we have to change the social framework in order for them to become in order for them to belong, but there will always be a space of non-belonging. And so for McGowan, so you're saying certain, you're saying, you're saying, so you're saying certain things that currently, right. certain things that currently occupy the space of non-belonging could be incorporated uh, in some cases, but that there's always going to be some space of non-belonging and something's going to occupy it. Yes, well, you're, like, a utopian picture would be like, oh, look, there's nothing left out. Everything has its place. Well, like the the Hegelian, Lacanian, Zizekian, Magawian position would be, no, there's, based on every symbolic order, there, there's, there's basically no reason for us to even think there's any type of symbolic order that can be without lacks, gaps, inconsistencies, 
by simply viewing all symbolic orders that have ever existed. And there is no other of the other, which is a famous Lacanian aphorism. We don't have a meta language. All language is just the language we have. And trying to do some idealized language, even to try to make one, you're still piggybacking off of our real existing inconsistent symbolic orders to do that. And so this kind of incompleteness theory of not only, I mean, I don't want to go into GGX ontology right now, but basically he thinks reality itself is incomplete, which that takes it to another level, right? That the real, the universe, whatever, the quantum mechanics at that level, that reality itself is incomplete and inconsistent. And we see the paradoxes that quantum physics get us, right? But again, that's we're going into ontology. I don't want to do that. He's just saying that our conceptual frameworks, everyone we've ever known is not able to integrate everything. They're limited, they're lacking, which is to say they're like us, right? They're 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 like human subjects insofar as we are at odds with ourselves, we are inconsistent, we're not able to know everything, right? And so that's the key for McGowan is that rightist what he calls rightist enjoyment or conservative enjoyment however it's now who we apply that to look there's people who are liberals or even leftists who can be tapped in to a rightist form of enjoyment yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you want to go are there people who are conservative or rightist that are tapped into a leftist kind? i don't know if that how that works i know that the one side can have the other's form of enjoyment and this look mcgowan makes it clear that rightist enjoyment is way easier to mobilize than leftist enjoyment. One, because it's much easier to point at a group and blame them than it is to think through structural problems. And it's, it's, it's an easier mechanism. Scapegoating is easy. Structural critique is, that's harder. And yeah. so, but, and I think I mentioned this to you before, but here's the thing, right? So, but if, if your, your political enjoyment is geared towards the universal lack or towards the structural deadlock or the what what lacanians will call the missing signifier or the lack in the other just to say if it's geared towards the gap in in the general social framework that's totally different than enjoying at the expense of a particular enemy that you've placed over the structural lack to obfuscate it to, to make it like, oh, no, it's not a, really a structural problem. It's an empirical problem that stems from this group. Hmm. And so one thing that, and you know this, right? You're saying, can something that's in the position of non-belonging end up being integrated into a, the social order? Yes, but that social framework itself must change. The example that's relevant to you is time energy. Uh, yeah. Right now, it's a universal lack. It's in the position of the missing signifier. It's in the, the empty spot of the real, right? It's what we don't have. Could we generate a social order, a new symbolization, wherein time energy would be something human beings get to have? Yes, but that comes at the expense of a new symbolization, a restructuring right. of society. Yeah, when you think about, like, if, if people became aware of time energy in the way that they are of money itself. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that 
everything would try to accommodate itself, honestly. I mean, obviously, capitalists are never going to be like, oh, yay, yeah, let's move towards a, a like a post-work world, no, you know, where, where instead of, like, shit jobs and bullshit jobs, people just have some basic societal chores, and then there's, like, different ways people can get extra things if they really want to, but people have their bases covered, and we're not, like, in this accelerating, like, crazy world. You know, is there a way that we could... If if people get that desire, obviously it's going to undermine the 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 profit, the vested profit interests of you know people who are in power today. But the exactly. but you could but but also a society you could also see a lot of people in the existing society go. Um, why do we have to do this? Why do why do we have to put our time and energy on a treadmill and an, and an auction block uh, where there's an arms race for it and our attention all the time when we could like, hey, what, you know, so, so yeah, exactly. But getting people aware of time energy as that lack, because it, it, it is, right? And it is in the place of non-belonging. Um, and that's why McGowan, like, is I the goal. told him a little bit about your theory of time energy. And but here's the thing. Your politics, you you want a politics based around time energy. That is for Todd, intrinsically a leftist form of politics and a leftist form of enjoyment, because you're trying to mobilize people around this common universal lack. This is and this is this is why I refuse to. I well, I try. I try to refuse getting dragged into like the politics of groups as as much as humanly possible and try to be, I'm like, I'm against groups. I'm critical of institutions and ideology. I'm for people. And I, and I will, and I want everybody because everybody's failing or not sufficient in various ways. Wait, what? No, that's what I, I mean. And that's one of the things I love so much about time energy politics is it's a universalist politics. Everyone is welcome to this. Like, a, a, a right, whether we call it rightist or conservative, I almost like scapegoating politics. Even just call it that, because yeah. what it does is like, look, there. Here's the thing: there are good people who are conservatives and rightists, and and I work with them. And right. even though I, this is like old school kind of American disposition. Yeah, I totally disagree with them on politics, but as far as their character goes, they're good, decent people. And so if, if we talk like this is where I'm just aware of words, but they don't, here's the thing. They, they, they're not some radical white supremacist, right? They're, they're not, they don't do any of that shit. They just think that lowering taxes on rich and blah, blah, blah. They do that kind of stuff. And they're, they're, you know, I just don't like making <laughs> these people I work with out to be like agents of evil. They're not. And so, yeah. On the one hand though, but there is, there's absolute truth to what McGowan is saying about this type of scapegoating form of politics. That is absolutely, I absolutely go with that. And so the problem is with any form of scapegoating politics, you think about Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. Well, okay. Jews can't join that, political movement because it is a particularity through and through like it's it's political organization is based around the particularities of 
those who belong, the particular people who belong, and then the, the particular group that doesn't belong, which I guess in this case is the Jews, right? So this form of scapegoating politics always have is always split between those who belong and are good and noble and those who are bad who destabilize and corrupt, right? That form of politics, fuck that shit. And a real form of politics that is universally inclusive is the other type that says, no, it's not based on your particular identity. Like it's it, a real leftist universalism is the opposite of identity politics insofar as everyone's welcomed because in a sense, everyone can't in a, in a specific way is part of this universal lack. Mm -hmm. So time energy, I don't care if you're white, black, gay, straight, hetero, you know, whatever, uh, trans, cis, all of us lack our time energy. Right. Right. Like we're all dealing with this universal lack. And so a leftist politics would try to organize all of us around this common lack we all have opposed to our particular identities. Yeah. And I, and it, and it might even, I don't know. So, but d does any ideology, any ideological system necessarily have to also have a scapegoat or is it, you know, cause it, it, I've, I thought I've heard it that just like, there's always a scapegoat, um, or a, a sublime object. And, you know, there's these different kinds of factors that are always present in an ideology. And you're saying, well, but the rightest form of enjoyment is just hyper-focused on this, on this uh, scapegoat. Or So I think if you were to ask Slavoj and Todd, I think they both would say, no, there can be a form of politics without a sublime object. Well, okay, here's the thing. There, here's the difference. I don't know if they would say you can have an ideology without a sublime object. You can have one without a scapegoat because the sublime object, I would argue, is not necessarily identifiable with the scapegoat. The scapegoat often gets the position of the sublime object, but it's not necessarily identical to it. So this is an like important distinction. Yeah. Like for consumerism, right? Consumerism can hang out like it'll put different things in the sublime position that aren't scapegoats, right? Consumerism would say, oh, if you just have the right collection of commodities, then you'll be happy, right? And th things will be right. Things will be good. Well, that's, that's an ideological obfuscation because I don't care who you are, know how much money you get, you're still a lacking subject, like in the strict Lacanian sense, that the moment you get what you think you want, then you want something else. And this is part of our basic psychoanalytic ontology is that we always desire something that we don't possess. We desire absence. We desire through the lost object, not the things around us. And anybody who collects anything knows how this works. I don't care if you collect movies or stamps or books. Every time you get the, 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 the thing you had your heart set on, it just goes on the shelf and then you want the thing that you the, the new thing or whatever. It's part of this logic of desire. And so consumerism, though, tries to sell us on the idea that, oh, there's a there's a final commodity. If you just get this, the last thing that fits into your commodity system, everything will be great. 
Okay, or it hangs out some sort of fantasy beyond just standard accumulation of commodities. So winning the lottery. If I, oh my God, if I could just win the lottery, like, oh my God, everything would be so good. So I think the, the lottery win or having your, your finished perfect system of commodities, both of them are positioned in the sublime position, but they're not scapegoats. So again, I, I'm just trying to make the argument that the sublime object, though often a scapegoat figure, also can be other things. And this I don't think consumerism, the way it's traditionally functioned, I don't know if consumerism has a, a strong figure of the scapegoat. Um, I think it, it tries to make the commodity itself the sublime object. The right. reason the reason I brought it up was because I was going to say, you know, the it, it would be those people who are who 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 have relative time energy and and use it to build their social and cultural capital um, as a career, um, lording that over other people and seeing necessary and essential labor as beneath them um, who are invested in the reproduction of the system that gives them this upward mobility and these challenges and this achievement hierarchy and everything like that, that they're, they're gaining through. Let's say I'm, I'm fine with that person being a scapegoat. I don't know. Like, and then I'm like, Oh no, is that rightist? Oh no. I'll just say, no, here's the problem. I don't care if whoever is a scapegoat, say, say they're doing something wrong or they actually are immoral. It doesn't matter because if the libidinal fixation is on that group or that person, it still, no matter how much somebody tries to avoid it, if that's where the libidinal fix is on, you obfuscate structural dynamics. You, the role of capital, the role of wage labor, the, like those are still the key things. And so I yeah. honestly think the scapegoat thing, like it is a distraction. It, 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 it always, if we're going to scapegoat some, let it be the system itself. But the whole point is that's like, okay, I, I get there's something fun in saying that, uh, at least for me, but to attack the system is precisely not to scapegoat. Like, hmm. And, and that's kind of the, this, this, uh, this is where Zizek's Bartleby politics comes in. Yeah, because is saying, saying I that's what Bartleby does. Because if if to give into the this you know the, the way that you know a, a time energy politics could be turned into a scapegoat politics, um, to, to, to wait, what I'm trying to say is Bartleby's uh, Jesus Bartleby politics would be saying I would prefer not to to that temptation. Right, it's mm -hmm. saying no. I'm 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 not going to become libidinally invested in the 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 binaries that are maintained through this this uh, delightful joyful it's hatred. Pure, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's a pure it's a pure rupture. It's a pure break. So when he says I would prefer not to, the not to, you can you can word it as I prefer pure negativity. Now, what that means is 
And what Bartleby, okay, so we've already laid the groundwork to understand what Bartleby politics is. So, and and I, I, uh, really quick, I want to do a quick shout out to Anne in the chat and say thank you because she's read parts of uh, Melville's um, Bartleby the Scrivener to me um, on like five different occasions in the last month while we were driving places together. And she was driving and reading at the same time. It was kind of crazy. Um, no, I was driving and she was, and she was reading it to me. And so we got through it and it's a really weird story. Have you read it? Yeah. 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 I, I read it when I w wrote the blog post. Oh, you did. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. I told Anne I wasn't sure if you'd actually read it. I, I, I was like, Oh, I figured he must've at least looked at it, but yeah, I'm glad to hear you actually read it. So, I mean, it's a, it's a delightful little no, read. I, I love about it. What's that? No, go ahead. Well, it's nice oh, that you can. It's so nice. It's nice. Oh, I I feel like what's happening is we're talking over each other because there's like a delay in the internet or something like that. But what? Yeah, I I love that you can get through a classic piece of literature in a relatively short time and that it's uh, thought provoking and and at this and and enjoyable. But also, I would say weird. Like uncomfortable in this in your stomach, like kind of a weird story. You don't. You're like, what's wrong with, what's wrong with Bartleby? What's, what's up with this dude? What's wrong yeah, with this what's guy? Because he's not right. And so I'll tell you what I think is why the story creates that feel. Now, a couple things real quick. One, a lot of other important philosophers, I believe Derrida, I Deleuze, I think maybe Agamben. I'd have to go down the list. I, I have this list somewhere. All of them have had, uh, have done interpretations of Bartleby. And so, okay, I wrote a blog post called Zizek or uh, Bartleby, something like that. Bartleby politics, I would prefer not to. Something like that. And then I wrote a sequel post called The Politics of si Silence, which nobody read that one, and I should have named it something else because nobody... And that's my fault. I didn't, I, I should have called it Bartleby politics part two because it's a sequel post. Uh, uh, um, I always intended to do a third one where I go through, I, I guess, Agamben or Derrida or Deleuze and, and discuss their interpretations of Bartleby and how they relate to Zizek. But as you and I know, Zizek's the one who's made this famous. So when, right. you, when you think of Bartleby's famous Whip, I would prefer not to. You think of Zizek, and I mean, shit, he he wears it on T-shirts, which is you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of a photo of him. Well, and, so, and for people who don't know, there's this whole thing where uh, every everywhere Slavoj goes to speak, people show up and they give him T-shirts. So, you know, there's this whole th culture around the the T-shirts that people give him that he wears. When, when we saw him in Athens, Georgia, uh, he had that Academia t-shirt on. The Academia was the name of the venue where the event was taking place, you know, and he'll just, he'll just be like, oh, you know, thank you. And then he'll just put it on. And I think he probably travels without very many shirts when he, when he goes places because he gets so many shirts. So, <laughs> you know, which is awesome. Right, yeah. I want that. You know, I want, I want to get a lot of shirts. I like shirts. Shirts are awesome. <laughs> But uh, delusional, so, okay. delusional Bode Lacanian says, I would prefer not to, and time and energy are superpowers uh, in the PMC class. 
I would prefer not to and time energy time and energy are superpowers in in against I don't know I'll have to think about that and uh, C6 says politics equal friends versus enemy according to Schmidt yeah and so I mean but you know he's a Nazi and so maybe maybe when a when a Nazi tells you politics politics really applies there what's that I mean, what Todd calls rightist enjoyment or rightist politics, which we're calling scapegoating politics. Yeah. I mean, it's totally Smith's probably the great theoretical example of that. Yeah. He's the epitome of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is, is he'll just go mask off and actually say it. A lot of, I think liberals even just kind of presuppose, um, presuppose it. So obviously there are, thinkers who are trying to, you know, uh, uh, pioneer or discover or aid the development of ways that could break outside of, you know, these, these confining, limiting, self-undermining uh, patterns and frameworks. And, you know, the, but people just kind of presupposing a state of war and that politics is just the friend-enemy distinction and that, you know, and then being like, quote-unquote, political realists um, is obviously like a form of ideology that, um, uh, fosters consent, uh, in the existing state of things. Even when, you know, a person says that they're against it, there's, there's a way that yeah. this allows you to play within it. So, which is what we're ultimately well, okay, so saying, which is bringing it back around what Bartleby politics would be like. You'd say, no, I refuse to get libidinally invested in, in war. In resistance. Or, yeah. Or, or, or in... yeah. Like, well, so here's the thing, right? In this, so this whole thing about Bartleby politics, you'd be surprised how little Zizek says about it across all of his books. The main place where he talks about it is the final chapter, chapter six of the Parallax View. And here's, here's the thing, right? Like what he says about Bartleby takes place against the background of all kinds of Lacanian ideas he's developed elsewhere. So part of it has to do with the concept of the act. Part of it has to do with subjective destitution. Um, part of it has to do with the night of the world and what the or, fuck or is that? Cartesian madness. Right? I don't even know what that is. I'm saying, and at some point I want to get to all that. Suffice it to say for now, what Bartleby does and what makes him unique is that he's going against the idea of inherent transgression and he's going against what you're talking about, which for Zizek, he would call it the politics of resistance, which comes out of Foucault. Now, I've seen certain Foucaultians say, oh, well, this is something Foucault says, like in the history of sexuality at one point and maybe some other places. And then you can say, well, he doesn't actually think whatever it's attributed to Foucault primarily. And I think there are places in Foucault where this is true, where it's like, what you're supposed to do is just resist the system in any way you can, right? Just resistance is like an end of, of itself, even though it doesn't affirm this, it, it, it would deny this, but like, or maybe it wouldn't. Um, that's something that I guess I should be, I should check on, but here's the point. Zizek, sees the politics of resistance precisely in how we've been describing inherent transgression 
or ideological disidentification. If you become libidinally fixated on resisting the system, then, unbeknownst to yourself, you are libidinally invested in the system. Because if you enjoy resisting the system, you don't actually want to undermine the system because you enjoy resisting it. And what makes Bartleby unique when you read that story, he's not resisting his boss. He's not getting enjoyment from fucking with his his superior, right? His, 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 the capitalist. You can tell, like, he's not libidinally invested in anything he's doing. And that's what makes it so weird because... If you detected like a like a, a chuckle or a, like a, a laugh or whatever, it's something in him where you're like, oh, see, he's he's enjoying what he's doing. That's what makes it so weird. The whole time you're like, he's just he's like a pure no. He's he's just I'm completely outside of this framework. I'm not going to affirm the system, and I'm not going to enjoy resisting the system. I'm a pure no. Like I I, I don't want any of the shit. And I am not going to become libidinally fixated in opposing it. Like, I'm not even going to enjoy undermining it in that sense. Because, again, if you do that, then you're hooked on the system itself. So that's where the Bartleby politics of preferring not to is the politics of I prefer a radical no. Not a no that resists and enjoys it. But a no that has no libidinal fixation in in this situation at all. Hmm. That's and a so, good. That's so. That's a perfect pausing spot, I think, because I need to uh, step away for a brief moment. And what I'm thinking is, uh, you should mute yourself. And uh, how much more time do we have tonight? Because. I almost think if we, depending on how much time we have, we could get through. I told you when we started, I had four main sections of this lecture. We're almost at the end of the first main section. So I'd like to get, like, we could maybe have some closure if we can get through this next, next stretch tonight. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like you to be able to get through preferably all of that. I mean, we'll, we'll just have to kind of, Make make ourselves. I'm not in a it, rush. I mean, you got you got a couple like an hour or two more. An hour or two more. Look, who are we doing this for? We're doing this for ourselves, first of all. Second of all, we're doing this for people who've got nowhere else to be. So of course there are people joining us live right now from Poland, and we're at, and for this intermission we're actually going to. To play Salamoon's uh, video from uh, uh, now, now I'm drawing a blank, uh, but we're gonna play this video live. Um, but we're being joined by people from all over the world live right now, and people might have to go away and go do stuff. But the main thing is, is that we're doing this for everybody so that you can come back to it and listen to it when you've got the time, the energy, the attention to be able to do it. And one of the main ways that that ends up happening for our audience is at work. And the other is when playing games. And so our audience is mostly between the ages of, like an overwhelming majority of us are between the ages of 24 and 44. 
and the and, and I think I think the overwhelming majority of us are either working full time or are the children of the kind of dads who are quote unquote really successful, but now like they the, their form of love, is, you know, supposed love, is trying to get you to do exactly what they did and, you know, make the same life choices that they did and, and lording their money over you <laughs> while doing it. That's the, that's the main, you know, the, the, and, and people are joining from work or while gaming and trying to go deeper with theory in a way that they've never done before. And we can kind of break from the normal confines of how a lecture or an interview or, uh, whatever, you know, an episode is supposed to be, and we can do whatever the fuck we want. And that's, you know, and this is in the Lacanian spirit, really, because his big battle um, with the establishment of his time um, was the fact that he was calling off, uh, what do you call them? Not, not, uh, sessions. He was calling well, off, they were called, yeah. he was calling off sessions at the point that it felt right to call off a session and they wanted him to do like this full 45 minutes or hour and a half or whatever that the person had signed up for and was paying for. And, and his thing was like, no, like sometimes the person says like the right thing and you can't respond. You just, you have to call it off right then because it'll ruin everything. Call it quilting. It's the quilting point where if, if, if there's a, an important moment where an unconscious truth comes out throughout through free association or whatever, Lacan would cut it off there because it punctuates it. It serves as a quilting point where it organizes everything that was said before in such a way as to emphasize this high point where something important was unconcealed. Right. And so, and that's the problem, right? They accuse them, oh, it's the short session. It's not so much the short session, it's the punctuated section. Right. It's the, session. It's the punctuated or quilted session where the the important thing that was revealed from the unconscious that's what gets highlighted through quitting so yeah trying to act like oh there's a set time um oh it has to be 45 minutes it has to be an hour well his whole thing is like why don't you end on the thing that is revelatory where that's the last thing and because if you keep talking after that then that important moment fades into obscurity right and i was it was kind of off uh, epic how our last conversation got quilted by the real when we got cut off right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh when it got cut off somebody in the chat was like said that that was the most epic rabbit trail off into like just oblivion of the year and or something along those lines you know and look we have the ability to cut the, cut it off when it feels right you want to get through this. I want to get through it. We're going to get through it. I think that if we tell ourselves that we're not going to get through it, well, then we're definitely not going to get through it. If we tell ourselves we're going to let ourselves get off easy, then we're, you know, but look, who are we doing this for? Obviously people who are able to join right now, that's awesome. But I, I expect most of you all will fall asleep or go on to some other thing and have to come back to this later, but you come back to it when you want to. And when you have the disposable, you know, time to listen to it and you know obviously you can speed it up or whatever but like for me i'm going to be reviewing all of these next time i'm doing manual monotonous labor labor um i like to say i i i try to avoid 
brain work and do labor work um, because I want to be able to listen to things like this. You know, I've, I feel like it helps with ADHD learning. Like you have to do things a lot more. You have to go over things a lot more. Um, you know, you, you can't just read it once or twice to take a couple of notes or whatever. You have to keep going over things when you're multitasking. But you can go over things again and again over the course of like years, not just months, years. You know, if with theory, you're you're not gonna be in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. I mean, in a sense, we're in a hurry. We've got a lot of stuff that we're doing and trying to get through. But these conversations in the space that we've created here is not one where we're like, oh, we're trying to get through it really fast or anything like that. Exactly. And so here's my thing. You know how many times I've listened and re-listened to episodes of Why Theory, which is Todd McGowan and Ryan Ingley's podcast. Um, It is my go-to podcast, and I've learned more from it than basically nearly anything else when it comes to Lacan and Zizek, etc. And for me, I always listen to the episodes in 20-minute, 30-minute chunks because when I'm out on a route, I'll just put it on while I'm driving, Mm. and I listen to little chunks of each episode on my routes and stuff. So, that, but here's the thing. Uh, and I want to, I want to say this because I, there's one I saw and, and you, I know you saw it too. One Lacanian said it was, a, it was the only thing I've seen somebody say something negative about these streams where they're like, Oh, you know, it's like, it's sprawling. Like, or it, it, it just goes too long. And basically this person was saying like, you and me or me or whatever like we should be doing video essays they should be really like 20 minutes or something real concise and he didn't like how these streams just go on and on but i'm like okay well fair enough you you know but i love how why theory for me is just yeah it's broken up into episodes but it really is just one constant ongoing discussion and I love that. Like I've learned more from that conversational medium, that co- conversational structure, than from just like a bullet point video essay. I love video point bullet essays, right? Uh, uh, bullet point video essays. They're great, and they, they're they're often the best introductions to something you can get. But if you want to really absorb a theory. I don't care if we're talking Merleau-Ponty or Deleuze or Levinas or Lacan, whoever. You're going to have to get tapped into a much bigger, sprawling discourse to really understand where you're at with it. And that's what we're trying to offer, is if people want to be able to just absorb, uh, you know, this, this ongoing discussion of Zizek and Lacan and at some point, we'll get back to Baudrillard. Great. And if they don't, then cool. But I think there needs to be these kind of options in learning where video essays have their place. Reading books obviously has still has its place. And I don't think any anything can beat that. Nothing's going to ever change that, yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. Also know that nobody has their time and energy to be able to read books the way they to really learn shit and absorb it. So yep. I, I, I think there needs to be these kind of ongoing seminar like discussions of all of these great thinkers 
for people to really get tapped into what the theory is about. And so, yeah, I guess that's me just it. saying like, that's why I defend what we're doing. Yeah. Thank you. And I don't know if we'll always have to have this sort of meta conversation that defends the, the, but we're also, I feel like just, just, it's like a sort of sanity check we have to do with one another, not just our audience. And our audience has to know that we've considered, you know, who our audience even is. Right. And so it's just like, yeah, no, this, this, I, I've, I've met a lot of people who say, oh, you know, those long streams, those would be a lot better as clips. And those are, you know, that you got 45 minutes of content in a three hour conversation, you blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh, okay. If that's true, then the 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 mode of the of 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 communication here that we've chosen is a mode that is specifically cut out for a kind of ADHD multitasking working class intellectual. Um, I a hundred percent believe that. I a hundred percent believe that. And that the the sort of meta conversation we end up having to have about reading and stuff like that is it's just it, it's because the people who are coming to this are obviously people who also like in an ideal world are going to be reading a lot more as well. Right. And th this is why we're pissed about not being able to have time energy. Like if you're only into sports, I guess, like you could get into intramural sports and keep working. You know, you could you could. You could be, you know, a worker in capitalism and you could also do some intramural sports, you know, on the weekend. Um, but if you if you're interested in the life of the mind and the history of ideas and, and doing theory and, and, and all these other things that has been traditionally only, uh, you know, uh, it has been something that only academics get to do. The, the desire that grows inside of you is one that proves the system itself insufficient and even you know, obviously the academic uh, institutions of capture um, that are going to try to, you know, take you and, and get you, you know, oh, oh yeah, you know, it'll, it'll set you up with a good gig so you don't have to, you know, worry about where your money's coming from. You'll be teaching. But the thing is, is you're going to be burdened down by so much academic busy work, so much bureaucratic stuff. Um, you're going to be sitting in on so many meetings and spending so much time grading and so much time repeating the exact same classes that you're supposed to be teaching over and over and over again. Like I know professors that are teaching philosophy 101 like three times in, in the same semester, three separate listings while they're d doing a couple other things as well. And it's like, it's, I mean, I admire it, but time energy is going to be a problem there as well. This is a desire and the articulation to a desire that renders the system impossible to satisfy what it is that is being demanded. It's, it's the, you know, you can look at commodities and be like, Oh, what if we had a universal basic income? Or what if we had, you know, these things that would make it so that all of these commodities that some people get are instead get to ha be had by everybody. You know, it's like, fair enough. That's one very interesting question and, and set of problems, but time energy is not something that you see on the shelf. And, and you might even think that you have it, but you don't, right? And so the more you think about it and then you, you start thinking, like, why is it that I always like set a bunch of goals or, or commit to a bunch of things and then realize like, oh, fuck, I, way too much. I, I signed up for way too many things here. This is, I, I can't, I have to back out of some of these things. Or you end up like you, you commit to doing something like going to the gym and then you're, you're suddenly not going almost ever and you're beating yourself up about it. 
It's like you, your, your, your appetite when you were scheduling that was bigger than reality, your appetite, but we're putting, we're putting the signifier onto that. It's, it's time energy. That's what's missing there. But we're going to, we're going to take a quick, well, it's not exactly a break. I mean, how long? Uh, I'm going to go upstairs for a minute. So how long do you want to take? The it would be like two minutes. You should watch from your phone so that you can you can see the video I'm going to be sharing. I'm going to mute and step okay. away from the computer while I show this video of Salomon DeCosta um, joining us from Katowice, Poland, um, to show a copy of my first book on the shelf at his library. So... I'm really excited to show this to everybody, and Michael has been excited to see it as well. So, pulling it up here. I'm going to step away. I'll be right back. Let's watch this, everybody. All right. Sup, Leap. It's your boy, Salamun de Costa. Well, actually, I'm Michael. And... I'm here in, in the center of Katowice at Silesian University. There's our library. It's fucking windy. Your book it should be there. I'll make some photos of it. And I thought I'll make a little vlog for you. So yeah, it's currently like 2 p.m. in Katowice, Poland. It used to be snow everywhere like yesterday, but now it's, you know, that's April. In, in Poland, like every time, like one day snow, one day sun, it's really hard for the vegetation to, to, to grow. <laughs> so yeah, that's basically all. I'm heading to the library and we'll see where they've placed your book. So yeah, that's basically our library. It's a connected library of the Silesian University and the local economical university. Uh, he's, here's our faculty of social sciences where I'm doing my PhD. There are some corporate buildings, you know, call centers, shit like that. Exploitation of students' labor, here the same shit. Here is our faculty of law and administration. Some, you know, petty bourgeois bootlickers. Nothing interesting. Well, that's the place where I spend most of my time working on my PhD and reading some, you know, Marx, Italian Marxism, theory of media, because that's what I'm doing my PhD in, actually political economy of alternative media, so yeah, come inside. So look, there is your book in our system. And it's been categorized at, as philosophy of capitalism and philosophy of mass media, philosophy of work and general philosophy. And it should be somewhere right there. And there we go, as I said, here we have Plato and there the waypoint. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry, everybody. You couldn't even see. You couldn't see it. Ugh! Alright, I gotta fix that. What the hell? I'm sorry, everybody. Let me fix that right now.
Good. I get a little bit more time for my break, so I'm going to step away for a second. But, um, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and start it right over again. What's up, Leap? It's your boy Salam on the Costa. Well, actually, I'm Michael, and I'm here in in the center of Katowice at Silesian University. There's our library. It's fucking windy. Like, you might check your book. It should be there. I'll make some photos of it. And I thought I'll make a little vlog for you. So yeah, it's currently like 2 p.m. in Katowice, in Poland. It used to be snow everywhere like yesterday, but now it's, you know, that's April in, in Poland, like every time, like one day snow, one day sun, it's really hard for the vegetation to, to, to grow. <laughs> so yeah, that's basically all. I'm heading to the library and we'll see where they've placed your book. So yeah, that's basically our library. Is a connected library of the Silesian University and the local economical university. Uh, he's, here's our faculty of social sciences where I'm doing my PhD. There are some corporate buildings, you know, call centers, shit like that. Exploitation of students' labor, here the same shit. Here is our faculty of law and administration. Some, you know, petty bourgeois bootlickers, nothing interesting. Well, that's the place where I spend most of my time working on my PhD, reading some, you know, Marx, Italian Marxism, theory of media, because that's what I'm doing my PhD in. Actually, political economy of alternative media. So, yeah, I'm going inside. So look, there is your book in our system and it's been categorized as, as philosophy of capitalism and philosophy of mass media, philosophy of work and general philosophy. And it should be somewhere right there. And there we go, as I said, here we have Plato and their waypoint. Cool, isn't it? Awesome. That's so cool. Thank you. So much for the screen share here. I thought I was sharing a completely different screen. That really awesome. messed yeah, everything. I'm glad I got to see that finally. Yeah, so you saw it? Yep. Awesome. Yeah, that was a pretty surreal experience. Um, and it meant, it means a lot. I I look forward to going to Poland now, um, more than cool. ever. And so, you know, it's a crazy place to be living right now with everything that's going on. So, I mean, it's always been a crazy place to live. So, that's why my... My ancestors got the fuck out of there. Because um, they're Polish. You know, they were Polish um, immigrants. Um, and Ukrainian. And Scottish and British and stuff like that. But, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I'm like a quarter Polish, a quarter Ukrainian. Or, no, 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 no. Wait. 
Hmm. I think that might might be more like an eighth or an eighth. Because um, I'm also Norwegian. I'm a lot more Scottish and British. But yeah, anyway. So, I'd have to see exactly how it's broken up. But it's not like that stuff means a whole lot to me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like... Like, I'd be getting in touch with my roots in, like, a deep sense. But, um, I, I, I nevertheless really, really, really do want to go to Poland. And am hoping to visit, um, Salamoon this, uh, or Michael, this fall or next spring. Like, I, in, a, in an ideal world, we'll see. Might be another year out because with travel these days and with everything going on, it's hard to tell, you know. So, anyway, thank you. That was that was dope. I'm just going to tell you now because we talked about it earlier, and so and uh, so I told you earlier today. Tom McGowan posted a new video, which is his interpretation of the film. Sorry to bother you. Yeah. And NBC Universal copyright claimed it because he used a couple of clips from the movie, and it was taken down. Aww. But uh, looks like he got it back up. He took the clips out of it. So today shall henceforth be known as the day that Todd McGowan conquered NBC in the name of theory. That sucks. I remember that happened to Jonas Cheka, Cuck Philosophy, when he... Well, it was with that animated movie, right? Yeah. So, I, don't, I just, honestly, it's one of the most frustrating things, and so people who, in, who are involved in you know, advocating for the abolition of intellectual copyright or at least the abolition of this way that it gets used that obviously goes against fair use, um, then, you know, more power to you because that's, it, it, they make it so you can't even talk about the society you live in. Right, like you, you instruction lecture on on uh, talking about life and death and existence, and he's he's using you can't quote that. yeah, and then and like the yeah, some production company comes in there and is like, we're uh, sorry, you're getting copyright struck. We own these words. Yeah, how dare you? I mean, it's weird. It's weird that capitalism hasn't done that with books yet. You know, where you and where every time we say. Zizek <laughs> Verso gets to like run ads on our video or something. God, oh no! If they can figure out how to do it, they do it. Well, and then we'll we would air when they, you know. And we just have to stop using names of thinkers. We just start being. Like, we would find a whole way around it. You know, I always joke about, it, but seriously, like if if some capitalist could copyright the English language, they would they would charge us a fee to use English. They would, they absolutely would. Um, and they already want to. That's why they call it. A okay. Well, that's why they call it a twenty-five cent word. Before we before we dive in, and there's these three things I want you to like. Okay, what are they? And like, let's let's dive into them. I just wanted to raise people's attention to the clip and ship achievement that's on screen. I made this today. Like, look at this truck that's shipping. There's a clip on top of it. It says clip and ship. It's got a time energy on that truck. So like, you know, I actually made it, which is sick. And, um. Yeah, the clip and ship achievement. Clip, maybe edit, and then upload a section of a plebe stream that is so perfect for plebe's purposes it gets featured on the Theory Plebe channel. 
if your clip gets featured, you will be credited, your channel will be re recommended, and you will be awarded the Clip and Ship Achievement. So um, that's the first official achievement actually like made public so far. There's been other ones, but you know the Meme Gang is doing good work, and uh, uh, Delusional Bodlicanian is has already done a bunch of things that deserve achievements, but as far as things you can do right now, this is one of them. As far as how to do this clipping and, and shipping and everything like that, stay tuned. I'll do a special video on how to do that. All right. So that's my own little advertisement. So I guess that was the message brought to you by our sponsors. Um, and, and then the last thing on that is just remember, uh, go up in the live stream chat for the links and the information for the Venmo and the PayPal and stuff like that. If you want to help Mikey get a cooler computer than he's already getting, because at this point he is getting a really cool machine and I'm going to deliver it to Raytown, Missouri myself and we'll do a live stream when we're together and it's going to be fucking awesome. But if you want to put money towards that for the next 24 hours, we're, we're still going to take donations for the computer that Chris is going to be building, uh, Mikey. But, um, after, after the next 24 hours, uh, that's not happening anymore. So you got 24 hours. If you're thinking about it, do it. That'd be awesome. It helps. And, uh, the more, you know, horsepower you give Mikey's machine, the better the video, the videos he will be producing, I'm sure. Cause you'll be making video essays and I'm stoked about that. I like this idea of doing a little bit of both streams and, and some video essays. Obviously, you know, the writing is my first love, but yeah, I mean, like I've told you, there's three or four blog posts that I know that they would make good video essays. Cool. Dope. All right, let's do it. So what are we going to, what are we getting into here for the last half? All right, so we, we, we talk about, politics of enjoyment and again if somebody wants to dive further into that just make a mental note like mcgowan's book will be out sometime this year mm. it will be a must read if you're interested in the politics of enjoyment um moving on though i just want to talk a little bit about the ideology of ego psychology now lacan and it's almost the thing that if you start reading lacan especially him earlier in his work he just rails against this thing he calls ego psychology to the point where you're like all right dude we fucking get it like can you fucking move on like ego psychology sucks all right got it on to the next one and so <laughs> he goes back and ba always is bashing it but for a long time and, and i had that attitude that i was just displaying like oh here he goes He's going to attack ego psychology. And I, I ignored it for a long time. Now, I'm almost to the point where, no, his critique of ID, uh, ego psychology needs to be revitalized. And to a certain and, extent, I would say that it's one of the most powerful things that he's doing. So, if people, yeah, if you want nobody, to... Nobody talks about it. If you want to critique ideology and in yourself and the ways in which your subjectivity itself and your ways of seeing and interpreting the world that seem like non-theoretical that just seems concrete is all ideology all the way down the, you know critiquing things like modernity and substance ontology okay. 
or subjectivity, like these these really thoroughgoing critiques um, from these thinkers is obviously where you want to go. Well, with Lacan, it's no different, right? And taking on ego psychology, this has ramifications for everything and everyone today. And that's the problem, though. Those ramifications aren't immediately apparent. And that's why it just seems like this... Like, he has his weird libidinal fix on controlling this school of psychology. And it's like, all right, dude. Um, but no, it, there's so much at stake in it. So, just the briefest of historical sketches. So, Freud caused a, a revolution in the history of thought. That once the Freudian unconscious is discovered, never goes back. Uh, there's no going back and things are the way we perceive ourselves even somebody who knows nothing about actual psychoanalysis everybody is aware of their unconscious and so like they're aware of the concept they're aware that oh i uh, there's some part of me that's unconscious right absolutely okay but here's the thing after freud a lot of freud's students ended up moving away from the radicality of Freud's position and instead of analysis being centered on the exploration of the unconscious and dealing with neurotic symptoms which they would argue are in their own way manifestations of the unconscious they they shifted more into this this approach of trying to strengthen the ego, which for Freud, I mean, it, it's almost in, incredible that you go, how could they, how could Freud's students possibly end up thinking that analysis should focus on the ego instead of the unconscious? Well, and here's funny, uh, uh, Vivek Chibber's point he makes about ideology and material conditions is actually relevant here. Mm. Well, a lot of these students came to America um, after you know world war ii and the holocaust all this so they come here and they're thrown into american consumerism and they find out that yeah as far as making money off of analysis goes um americans really don't want to do this uh shit so it's, uh, there's almost like material conditions here like all right if i want to make money off of doing analysis i, I like exploring someone's unconscious and tapping them into their repressed desires and all of this stuff really isn't good for business in this narcissistic consumer culture. And so it's as if the default narcissistic consumerism forced them to privilege the ego. And it's like, okay, well now what we're trying to do is give people a good self image of themselves and reinforce their self-image and all of that which just is completely the opposite of what psychoanalysis proper freud lacan right so like actually does an example i think this might be an extreme example um but i heard it from somebody just a couple months ago the person said that um because because she's moving, she's not going to be seeing her counselor anymore until like 
they they like cried like hugging goodbye and everything because they've been you know doing this counseling for like and it might have been therapy you know and I've, and I'm forgetting if it was counseling or therapy but um it had been going on for like uh since like a young childhood age now to to being an adult so um obviously like people need special attention and help and that's not bad um now but the thing is is a psychoanalyst especially at least ones who are influenced by Lacan they're not going to be your friend they're not like so i mean that there might be a place for someone who's really like coaching you or just is like your kind of go-to like third party sympathetic ear you know outside perspective but, that's not a psychoanalysis. but this is not psychoanalysis yeah so so why not and and what wh- why does why does lacan well, want to have nothing to do with this so a great probably the best book so far in english written on lacanian technique or what the goal or what what the basic parameters are of lacanian analysis is bruce fink's book Oh God! I always botch the title here. It's a uh, no. It's a clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis. This is one of the great books um, written on Lacanian psychoanalysis in all of the English-speaking world, at least. Nice. Easily, Bruce Fink's most important book. Bruce Fink is—he was a guy. He wrote another book called *The Lacanian Subject*, and then a bunch of other books on Lacan. He's an analyst himself, and he did a lot to get Lacan popularized in the English-speaking world. But by far, his clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis is his best book. And, and you get you get these hipster you get these hipster ass theory people who want to be like, oh, Bruce Fink doesn't matter now. It, it's like they forgot about Dre. So <laughs> they forgot about her, yeah. Yeah, no, shut no, up. I mean, this, this book especially, this is still somebody was like, What are the top five or top ten, wherever, whatever, best written about Lacanian Lick- Cycle? And this is at the top of the list. And it's because here, so many, so many books written on Lacanian psychoanalysis, they leave out the discussions of the clinical structures which is neurosis, which if you break it down further is obsessional neurosis and hysteria. Then you have perversion. Then you have psychosis. Fink's book does a better job of fleshing all this stuff out than anything. And so. I really, really, really hope we can get into that. I really hope we can get into that stuff soon. We will. But again, that I've told you, I have to write a blog post on the clinical structures at some point, but right. You know, I'm energy. So, um, so here's the point though. So a, a, a Lacanian analyst, they are not there to be your buddy. They're not there to be your friend. And a Lacanian will put it in terms of, we're not going to do this ego to alter ego thing. It's not ego to ego. It's not like, Oh, you you sit there and tell me about all the stuff you like. And then I'll sit here and tell you about the stuff I like. And then we'll have a, uh, we'll identify with each other through all the things we like or dislike, like the whole point of analysis for a Lacanian is to get beyond, like, of course you got to do a little bit of that at first. You can't just have somebody walk in and then you're just totally silent to them. You, 
would you would never it never come back. But <clears throat> these base, basic initial sessions, like an, like any analyst will just go, these are bullshit sessions. Kind of, like you have to do it to get somebody going into therapy. But the point, uh, the way Bruce Fink describes it is, okay, so initially when you meet the person, it's ego to ego. It's your self-image in relation to their self-image. It's all mirroring and all this kind of shit. Um, I like this. You like that. Oh, wow. We have so much in common. Oh, yeah, we're friends now. Okay, that's all bullshit. We got to get past that. So once these this initial phase is over, then the analyst becomes to like embody the big other, which is to say they're not a particular person with particular likes and dislikes and particular personal history. Now they embody social authority itself. Well, your form of enjoyment, your neuroses, your symptoms, all of this stuff about you at the unconscious. Well, that sucked. But um, I think we're back. Let's see about Michael. Mm, connection lost, connection restored. Sorry, everybody. Bought this really nice antenna so I wouldn't have to deal with this bullshit. Still, but still dealing with this bullshit. So, let's see if I can get back into a call. I was saying, anyway, so the nice thing is for the people joining in the future, the people who are not here right now, you all get to have skipped over the part where the signal got dropped and I lost my internet and the call got disconnected and everything like that. For you all, that just gets skipped over. For the people who actually stuck around though and are still in the chat, thank you for waiting around. Thank you for your patience. Um, I know it requires a lot of patience sometimes, you know, these things. But uh, we're doing the best that we can with what we've got. I bought a really nice antenna so that that wouldn't happen and here it just happened anyway. What, what 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 can we do? Right? What can we do? I'm gonna have to call Michael back here. Call failed. Come on. Okay, let's see if this'll work. What's up, people, where you're at? What time is it right now? What time is it right now? Where you're at? to tell you. Oh, here we go. Are we back? We're back. I don't even know where it cut off. Yeah. Um, anybody in the chat tell me? Yeah, does anybody in the chat remember where it cut off? I, You started kind of cutting out and then I was like, Okay. And then someone was like, oh, you're cutting out. And then all of a sudden my shit dropped. I lost all connection. So, 
It was weird. It was really weird. It might be the windstorm outside. Wouldn't be surprised. Oh uh, yeah, I saw. Uh, I saw a lot, and then I. I'm like, oh god, I said a lot in the last four minutes. I'm like, uh. yeah, yeah. You probably just kept going. Um. What 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 were we talking about? Sorry, I've been so bogged down in technical, um. Stuff here. What, what where are we at? Broad strokes. What were we just talking about? Okay, so the role of the analyst embodying the big other. Right, and you're saying so after you okay, get so we're after, about you said after what, you what the me, role of the analyst is. Right, you said after you get past the part where you've had the niceties and you've connected at that egoic level. After a person gets past that, they put the. The, unconsciously they're putting the analyst in the role of big other and they're seeking that big other's approval or ways of what, 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 what it's not just one. The analyst seeks to do that. Oh uh, no, this is bad. Everybody. The internet is not looking good. It is just the wind is so strong. Are you there? Ugh, hate this. Yeah, I can hear you now, but you oh, cut out again. Oh, uh, now you can hear me. Well, everybody, listen. I guess my windstorm is your problem. So, this. The wind is actually like shaking the building I'm in. Um, well, let me let me dive back in. Yeah. See, this is what's gonna happen though. It's not even gonna work. Gosh, I think we might just have to call it off. Are you not? It's not working. Yeah. Every time you say you're gonna start talking again, you just disappear and I'm sure you're talking by the real yeah I know this is so silly this well I haven't no I haven't been talking as much it's 1.44 a.m. in Scotland right now right can you hear me yeah Deathcon says can you hear me yeah, yeah I just heard you right there Nope, there we go. It cut out. So, so. Uh, what's up, everybody? What's up, everybody? I don't know, man. I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I think we're back. Now people can see me. You can hear me? I can hear you. Hey. Nice. All right, well. What about chat? Can you everybody hear both of us? Yeah, uh, chat, chat. Are we good now? I think we're good now. If anyone wants to post their timestamps to these more recent hashtag free Mikey videos, please do. If not, I'll follow up when I get my t 
Hashtag time energy. It says delusional Bode Lacanian. People are saying it's working now. Good. All right, everybody. Yeah, look, something you can do that helps you and helps other people is you can timestamp parts of the video. Um, what does that What does that look like? You may have you if you're joining right now and you're not much of a YouTuber uh, person or user. Uh, there's a comment section at the at the bottom, and sometimes you can go down there. And sometimes a person went to all the trouble of making it so you can skip to specific parts of a video, and they'll give a description of what you'll see when you go to that part of the video. And um, it can be like a table of contents or a person's notes, and it's really useful, and so it's appreciated. And so it's a it's definitely a way of contributing that uh, goes from being more passive, like when you're multitasking, doing other things, to being more active. Um, so it's a, it's a way to step up your, your game if you're studying, doing this stuff. But so far, I guess I've talked for the last like minute and a half to two minutes here, and, and, and Mikey, you're still there? Yep. All right. Let's just assume it's going to work now and see how that goes. But you were talking about, yeah, so the Lacanian analyst is not your fucking homie. And uh, is going to purposefully foil making attachments at that level so that you can get to that part where oh, you're just stuck with that person in the position that you're ultimately putting them in anyway unconsciously, which is the position of the big other and the subject's right. supposed so, to know. Yes. So here's the thing. In your early development, in childhood, on up, being a teenager, into adulthood – your unconscious relationships to social authority, to the law, right? All of the, the big other, all of these shape your desire, your inhibitions, your forms of enjoyment, your symptoms, your neuroses, right? And so what the analyst does after the initial phase of the imaginary ego to ego shit is over, shifts into being the embodiment of the big other where the analysand or the patient is able to work through whatever hang-ups issues deadlocks problems etc they have with social authority so this is a key aspect of analysis but <clears throat> and and bruce fink emphasizes this lacan goes on even further to say that what the analyst must become even beyond being the embodiment of the big other is objet petit a, the, the object cause of desire. Now, what th does that mean in this specific situation? What it means is the analyst must withdraw from presence, basically. This is why for Freud and Lacan, the analyst has to sit behind the patient. It's not a face-to-face, ego-to-ego relationship. And so in becoming like a pure voice, right, you, it, that alters the dynamic in and of itself. But it's not just that the analyst is pure voice or pure embodiment of the big other. It's also that the analyst doesn't really talk much at all. All the analyst does is highlight little moments in your speech, right? The way they punctuate or highlight is always to direct you or indicate to you that something of the unconscious just manifests itself. But 
as the analyst withdraws, it becomes more and more objet petit all, the cause of desire. And what the analyst is seeking to cause is a desire for the analytic process itself, right? Like that's the real function of the Lacanian analyst is to, through its absence, cause the patient to have a desire to keep free associating, keep coming back, keep it doing the work of analysis. And it's in this sense that the, the analyst becomes the embodiment of objet petit a, because they're creating or causing a desire for analysis itself, or at least they're nurturing it. You can say that somebody went to analysis, they had some glimmer of a desire for it, but at the same time, People are going to resist the work of analysis at all costs. They'll always find an excuse not to go, not to show up, to cancel it, to postpone it. And so whatever tiny little larval desire is there, that has to be cultivated and nurtured. And that's what happens when the, the analyst withdraws more and more, right? Like they know they're the, the patient knows the person's listening and listens attentively it's totally concerned with what's being said and yet doesn't interact much. And so it's this whole dynamic that's set up that lends itself to causing the desire for the work of analysis. And so. So, totally so, different. so job security for an analyst is just seducing the analyst and to want to pay for more an, an analysis. Is that, is that what you're saying? But well, no, because here's the thing, there is an end to analysis. Now what that means for specific people, it's different. Like sometimes it's talked about in terms of the realization there is no big other or subjective destitution. Another can be identifying with the symptoms. Like there's all these different ways to end it, but the, the analysis is essentially over when transference is broken. Now, transference in this very specific sense means when it means that the, the, the patient looks at the analyst as the subject supposed to know, which is to say, hey, I have these problems. These problems have brought me here to analysis. This person sitting across from me right now, they have the knowledge of what's wrong with me. And so the end of analysis is when the patient sits there and is kind of like, all right, this person doesn't really have anything special to offer me anymore. Like, I don't know why I'm coming here. Like, and it's, it's almost like the, the, the breaking of transference can also be an indicator that analysis has done what it, what it needed to do. Here's the point. Psychology is totally different in its orientation. Right. And so we're going to, you know, in this whole set, I actually changed the title of this live stream right now. It says, Lacan says, fuck ego psychology. That's what I, that's what I changed it to. So here's, okay. But, 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 so but, you're, but I've got a question. So you're saying that transference is when somebody puts the, that, that other in the position of the subject supposed to know? Yep. It's not like transference. A lot of times, it's used as a synonym for projection. Like, oh, I'm projecting my, like, I don't, I want to disavow that I have a temper. And then whenever I see somebody else have a temper, I'm basically projecting my own shit with my temper onto them, right? Like, that's, okay. 
that's not transference for Lacan. It's very simple. It's relating to the other person as they are the subject supposed to know that they have a, a higher access to knowledge than you yourself have. And it, I mean, another way to say it is they're the unbarred big other. Like they're the one who has all the authoritative knowledge, um, discernment, etc. Like they're the one who can help me. I am powerless. They have the power to help me. But it's primarily in terms of the knowledge they have. Now, Zizek in Sublime Object, he'll talk about the subject supposed to believe, believe the subject supposed to enjoy. But that's more his thing. For Lacan, transference is simply that. That, and if you don't, here's the thing. Like, this is why he talks about like, if you're not duped, then you can't know anything. Like, you have to be duped into thinking that the analyst has some special knowledge about you in order to go into analysis, right? But the point is, they, the analyst has no knowledge about your unconscious. No one does. You have it. You have the knowledge, but you just can't access it immediately. But <laughs> the analyst, certainly, they don't know anything about you. But you have to presume or presuppose that they have knowledge of you in order to go. And so transference is broken when you no longer relate to this person as uh, an esteemed authority with special knowledge. Right. And so it's like, it's kind of part of growing up is, is, is like, you know, realizing these people aren't going to save you. Well, yeah, well, I think we could even say there's a certain transference with your parents. Like kids think their parents have the answers to everything and part of growing up is the moment where you go, hey, they're just people. They're full of shit like everybody else. They don't have, you know, and so, yeah, but transference is essential to the work of analysis. It's one of the four fundamental concepts for Lacan, but. Oh, really? Okay, but here's. Yeah. And yeah, but here, here's the, the point, right? The point is for psychoanalysis, the work of analysis entails reckoning with one's unconscious working through certain aspects of one's unconscious, etc. That is totally bracketed out in ego psychology. What ego psychology does is try to build up your self-esteem, your self-image, which this is like keeping it totally in the imaginary register. It doesn't even really, I mean, maybe it does a little bit with being the, the big other, but it's only insofar as you, the, the therapist is the big other to affirm to you a certain image of yourself, right? It never goes in. It's not about reckoning with the unconscious. It's not about any of that. It's about building up a sense of self uh, that a person likes, building a self image that one is enthusiastic about. And being I mean, a good, being a good cat. Great you are. And the thing is with it, because I, I, and I speak, from a certain type of experience. So I, I you know, it, this is not my direct experience, but the friends I've had who go to analysis, uh, I don't want to call it analysis, go to therapy and tell me about everything that they talk about with their therapist. It's always this shit. It's always, oh, and, and here's the thing with it. Not only is it just about building up their sense of ego, their, their ideal ego, it always involves people in their lives becoming enemies. Oh, this person seems abusive or this person has done this to you or whatever. And it's like, 
it's as if the therapist is there to just build up the person's ego and tell them how everybody else has been shitty to them or wronged them in some way. And it's like, they might say little tiny things here or there that are negative. Oh, well, maybe you should have done this, or maybe you should have dealt with it this way. But in, it's those are only there to kind of simulate that, oh, you're being critical of yourself. When in reality, all it does is tell you how great you are and make everybody in your life suspect for how they abuse you or take advantage of you or emotionally exploit you or whatever. And the point is like, yeah, and it's, 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 you know, we, this all ties into the therapy culture critique. I, I, I want to acknowledge the obvious fact that the, uh, therapy matters is important, is useful. Um, and that not all, psychotherapy and psychology and, 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 and therapy, and it's not all bad. Um, now I, I know people are going to want a stronger statement than that. Like, in fact, it's, I don't think it's, look, if you could afford it, then like, you know, and, and you think it might help, you should definitely be trying it out. But the point is, um, if you put, somebody in the position of like your, 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 your best friend that, or not really best friend, but yeah, just kind of like this, this, uh, this kind of esteemed role of someone who's like, yes, your secret keeper and your person you can go to. And, and that just becomes like your thing. And, and it, it becomes about, uh, building up your sense of self, your sense of self-esteem and your ego. But also that comes along with all of this. What, 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 uh, I think, uh, Gosh, is it Frank Ferretti and therapy culture calls the patho the pathologization of everyday life, which is to say like the the business model is one where they you you in order to exist, you basically need this support person um, that you can go to where you've you've put them in this position. And what you're doing is you're pathologizing everyday life shit, shit that people deal with all the time. But this is your, this is, this becomes an outlet for you, right? This becomes an outlet for, for venting about the bullshit in your, that's happening in your life. All right. Well, obviously not all therapies like that. And so that's the, that's the big obvious no duh. Like, so insofar as what we're talking about, uh, it pertains to this or that therapist that we've heard about, then, you know, then there you go. But the thing is, is I also know that there's a lot of people who, Take their, their role very seriously, understand the sort of like this sort of weird parasocial and transference related issues that can occur and and then handle that all very responsibly. Now, it doesn't always go so responsible, like uh, a good example of how I, I've not told you this one before, Michael, but um, Ann and I went to last time we were near Seattle. We went to like a, a play. It was like an improv theater, like rap group thing. And it was pretty cool. Um, and what, you know, so they're, they're asking the audience questions and then sometimes they'd go deeper with those questions. And they asked us, this one person talked about how her, and when she was six years old, her therapist convinced her that aliens were going to come and abduct her. Now, obviously like that's, that's an example of a bad therapist. That's an extreme. That's not the kind of shit that most people experience most of the time. What we're talking about with ego psychology does pertain to a lot more 
less extreme examples and could be considered to be the norm insofar as people think that the solution to psychological distress or disorders is a healthier or a sense of of self-esteem right and you know and in therapy culture freddie goes a lot further with it too to talk about how the like the cultivation of being hyper sensitive and hyper attuned to one's inner life and and taking offense taking offense to uh, at, at at or towards others um can also become a part of th this entire process when it's commercialized and turned into um a, a sort of uh job security for for people who yeah who were the services that they're selling you aren't really helping you get control over your life i guess and so i don't know like i don't know if that's fair if that sounds like i'm on the right track here but would you say that alcanian does think that they are able to through being through frustrating desire in this dynamic and and being for the most part silent um you know, only asking kind of like leading questions and being pretty avoidant, you know, in that, in that role. Do you, you think that they are helping you take control of your own life? Would you put it that way? But the, I mean, maybe in a sense, but the thing is one, what a lot of therapy does is try to offer a road to happiness. Psychoanalysis does not promise that. Like Freud's famous thing is like, I want to turn your hysterical misery into common unhappiness mm. so there's a much different orientation of what to expect from the process um psychoanalysis does not promise happiness and as far as like gaining mastery over oneself well mastery is the whole thing the ego is about so if anything what so psychoanalysis no. does is try to show you how you are not master in your own house how you are split and how what you think you want isn't actually what you want. Uh, what you think will make you happy isn't what will make you happy. And it challenges the very idea of happiness itself. So here's the thing. Like, as far as, so like, how does this relate to ideology? The point is what ego psychology does in emphasizing the ego, strengthening the ego, building it up, is it, obfuscates or conceals the unconscious dimension of the subject, which this means like ego psychology is itself ideological because it's obvious obfuscating the points of the real in your discourse. It's not highlighting them. It's covering them over. And so the point that that's kind of the difference, right? Like, so Zizek has, it, it's one of the few times I've seen him mention ego psychology directly but this is from enjoy your symptom he says <clears throat> and he's talking about you know the metaphor of throwing the baby out with the bath water so he says this inversion of the metaphor of the child and the dirty water enables us to determine succinctly the opposition between lacanian psychoanalysis and its ego psychology version in the latter ego psychology the aim of the analytic cure is to get rid of the dirty water symptoms, pathological tics, etc., i.e. everything that appears as a disturbance. In order to keep the child ego as unspoiled as possible, cleansed of all dark spots, whereas the aim of the Lacanian cure is to throw out the child 
to suspend the Analizan's ego so that the Analizan is confronted with his dirty water, with symptoms and fantasies which organize his or her enjoyment. In other words, it is not the strategy of the so-called free associations in the psychoanalytic cure. Hold on. I'm sorry. It says, in other words, is not the strategy of the so-called free associations in the psychoanalytical cure precisely to suspend the function of the ego so that once its control diminishes, the dirt of the analysis enjoyment comes to light. So there's the difference, the, the, I mean, the, the sharp difference between the two, right? And so ego psychology wants to throw out the, the, the bathwater, keep the kid. Psychoanalysis wants to throw out the kid, keep the, the dirty water. And so the point, of course, is like analysis has to be about showing you how you enjoy self-sabotaging yourself, like what your death drive is. It's about showing you how you, in, you, you fantasize or enjoy things you, you at the egoic level don't want to identify with. It's all about this kind of beating the shit out of yourself type thing. And that, that is why I would say that ego psychology is a form of ideology. It's ideology at the personal level, not at the social level, like how Zizek is typically... Like Zizek is putting the emphasis on these social forms of ideology, but ego psychology is ideological too, just at the personal level. But as we see this rise of therapism or therapy culture, uh, it's as if this kind of approach to the personal, it's gaining more of a social positionality. So we have to take that into consideration as a form of ideology. Um, and so how often is the appeal to gaslighting really just a strategy in the avoidance of one's own dirty waters, one's own pathologies? Is not there always someone who plays the heavy for someone in ego psychology? What if your own forms of enjoyment are the real problem? Therapism sweeps all of these real dynamics under the rug of the imaginary ego. It's good for business and fills in the structural lack, the contradiction between conscious and unconscious of the subject with some sublime object, scapegoat figure, thief of enjoyment. And so... Wait, wait, wait. Just, Did you just read that? Yeah. That was him talking? No, that was me. I wrote that. Oh, because you said therapism, and I was just like, if he said therapism, you got to tell me about that. Yeah, that's... No, no, no. That was me kind of... That's me, like, riffing off of his quote. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. Cool. So, I, I again, like, I'm trying to take what he's saying about ideology at the social level and show how it can even, this same type of dynamic can work its way into therapy. Sure. So, so yeah. And so, that's about that on that. So... Now, again, how much, how much, give me an estimate of how much time we have. Look, if the wind's not going to knock. I know, you're, like, the, but like, realistically. You said that there was uh, two things. So wait, you said you had gotten through one thing and then you were going to get into the next thing. And then we had all the problems with the connection. 
And now you've gotten through one more of them. Is that right? Well, yeah, but I mean, well, okay. I think we have, so the next big thing to discuss is master signifier and quilting point that will take us a while. And then there's a few other points actually, but well, we've considering the fact that you've already said the word quilting point in the last stream when it ended, you said we were quilted by the real, and then I think that that got that got referenced again this stream. It would only be fitting to at least say what that what you meant by that for for anybody okay. who's been like, all right, I'm trying to listen along, but you're not explaining what quilting is. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So, okay. Master signifier and quilting point. There's there's a debate among Lacanians. One thing is certain. The, the, these are signifiers, right? We're talking about signifiers in in the Lacanian sense, even the Saussurian sense of what a signifier is. So the distinction between the signifier and the signified is a distinction we get from Ferdinand de Saussure. He's a Swiss linguist. And his semiology, what we would call semiotics, has had like such a profound influence on the history of continental philosophy that it, we can't even do it justice. But no. simply put, let's, let's take the basic example. So a signifier would be the word tree. T-R-E-E. -E, okay. The signified would be the concept we have of the tree, right? We, right. For Saussure, it's like a little image of a tree, right? So the signifier is what indicates or represents the signified, right? Now, the two together form the sign. So the sign is comprised of signifier and signified. Then, of course, signs are said to refer to things. So there's the, the signifier or the word tree there's the concept or image the mental image we have of trees and then there's actual trees out in the the world right. so you have a signifier a signified and a referent and the referent is the actual tree but for lacan because he's a psychoanalytic theorist and a practicing psychoanalyst he discovered that signifiers have a certain primacy over even signifieds and right. over reference. And so when you're in, when you're doing analysis, what you have to focus on are the actual words the person says, not what they mean to say, not the intended signifieds, but what they actually say. So a, you take a, a standard Freudian slip for, let's take a, a like a silly, naive one, like, like, Hey, uh, you say, say somebody go, goes out on a date, they're, they're doing a blind date and they say, Hey, um, would you like some bread? And the other person responds, sure. I'd love some bed. Okay. I know it's silly, but the point is. Or head. They should say head. You could do head too, right? Sure. I'd love head, some head. Bread, and they're like, whatever. Oh, oops. Oops. Right. And they would immediately say, I meant to say, right? And the meant has to do with the meaning they meant to convey with the signifier, with the word. 
but it doesn't change the fact they used a different word, a different signifier. And the truth of their desire is actually in the signifier, the material word they use, not in what they mean to say. What they mean to say has to do with their ego and how they want to present themselves, right? But what they actually say has to do with the unconscious desire, which is the truth of their subjectivity. And so for Lacan, this is why signifiers are more important than signifieds when doing the work of analysis, because the unconscious makes itself known through the signifier, not the signified. The signified, again, is caught up with the ego and conscious intention, etc. And so what Lacan ends up eventually doing and thinking through, I mean, he spent his whole career thinking about signifiers, but he eventually, and this really gets fleshed out in. Come on, Linda, you're killing me. Hello? Killing me, Smalls. Womp, womp, womp. Are we back yet? Salamoon says, Plebe's two biggest enemies, PMC and the wind. True. Deathcon says, Ego psychology sounds great to me but not very helpful or interesting. <laughs> Boring. Are we back yet? I think we're back. Pretty sure. Now I just got to get Michael back on the line. He's at least got to finish. He's got to at least wrap up what he was trying to say. He's got to at least try to wrap up what he was trying to say here about the master signifier. Jeez. Hey. I don't even know where, where I cut off on that. Um. Well, look. You're you're back, but Michael isn't yet. Says Deathcon. Thank you. Solomon says plebes two biggest enemies: PMC and wind. Yes, true. All right. Uh, where were you? You were talking about seminar. You, you said oh, seminar no. seventeen. Seminar seminar seventeen is where he develops the concept of the master signifier, and then oh, that's good, where you okay. got cut off. Okay. So, so the master signifier. Yeah, it gets formulated for real. I think it's first time at seminar 17 i believe but there's different signifiers throughout lacan's development that are closely related to this if not really the same signifier and now he's talking about it just in different terms but these other signifiers are we can talk about the symbolic phallus or the phallic signifier or we can talk about the name of the father right like here's the point is that for Lacan, when we're talking about a social symbolic order, there's a signifier that occupies a privileged position that is it's the, the position of the exception. Like, it's the signifier that gets to stand outside the rest of them and basically impose itself on them and say, and this is why it's a master signifier. Like, you all have to organize yourself around me. 
Right. So, and just to kind of bring it back to Saussure, like one of the points is that the, to break out of the way we normally think about language, there are not standalone words that refer to standalone objects in the world. The word at the the and obviously the things in the real world have real relations with one another. Some more so than others. Some more dependent than others. Um, but for from the in language, they're going to have unique relations. So a dog is not a cat. Uh, but the two signifiers kind of invoke one another, right? Well, you could also say a dog is not a ferret, but the way that language is gained, these words get, a, these signifiers get associated more than other ones. Um, apple and red go together. You know, so there's, the, or, you know, something gets its meaning by not being something. It is all, you know, so a, a tree is not a living animal or, or like a, you know, a four-legged mammal, you know, you, you get your sense for what something is based also on what it is not. So it has like these associations, but a master signifier is going to take everything else and alter its meaning. Exactly. Well, and so the way Saussure talks about it, I mean, his form of semiotics or his theory of language is called the differential theory of language precisely for the reasons you're talking about, which is to say words only mean what they mean in relation to other words that they differ from. And if, it, you know, Derrida, Derrida would take this whole thing and turn it into difference and radicalize it. But the point is signifiers for Saussure, they're all kind of on an even playing field. Like they just... They each get their meanings from their differences between them and other words, and they're all caught up in a, a synchronic structure that determines their meaning, which is to say, right, like the word tree, you can't, it doesn't mean anything if it doesn't, if you don't also have in the background, bark, leaves, plants. Right. But any one of those also refers to other signifiers that help give it its meaning, and so that's the idea is that there's no pure like one-to-one -one correlation between a signifier and a signified what what a signifier means has so much to do with its place within language its relationships to other words right but lacan and and part of this has to do with the influence of hegel on him and the, the concept of the master slave dialectic but for lacan he, he he's like okay there's this position, and even though he's not always going to talk about it like this, Freud has this myth of the primal father and the primal horde. And this myth has a really important influence on Lacan. And a lot of the times he's referencing it, but indirectly, and you don't even know that's what's going on or what's operative in the background. But the point is, is that the masculine structure, if you look at the graph of sexuation from seminar 20, Lacan's theory of sexual difference, the, the, the masculine structure, the feminine structure. You know, the, the two genders. Say what? I said, you know, the two genders. Yeah. So, but for him, of course, these are, they're almost, they're weird. They're like real symbolic structures. They're, they're far deeper than what we usually refer to as gender. But right. 
that's a discussion for another time. Well, and also All you can't you can't do gender theory really without understanding his sexuation because all of the most important gender theorists um, obviously are engaging with like yeah whether pro or con it's it's had that big of an influence but here's the whole point right for for what we're talking about with the master signifier so for the masculine position there's always an exception that defines the position right so like we we commonly refer to you know, oh, he's the man. When, when And when you use the definite article, the man, you're referring to this guy's exceptional status. Like, he's above and beyond the rest of us guys. And so when we talk about a phallic signifier or a master signifier, we're referring to a signifier that has come to occupy this phallic position of exceptionality. Like, I'm over and above the rest of you and I'll do the commanding, I'll do the organizing, I'll do, uh, you know, I'll, what I say goes right now. Of course, the key Lacanian insight is that the master or anyone who occupies the phallic position, it's always a bluff because they lack two. They're not actually ontologically different than the rest of us. It's all a charade. It's a joke, but nonetheless, they still occupy this phallic position. And so the master signifier, it, it always, regardless of what particular signifier occupy, look, God, the word God is an example of a master signifier, right? You think about how various societies throughout history, they've, all, they've been organized around the signifier God. And that signifier, you can't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Deathcon. Chad. Chad is this term the internet has developed, basically for the man, for the phallic figure, for the exceptional, right? And right. Yeah. So Chad, it's a me Chad is kind of like an internet lingo. It's the the phallic position. Right. Right, and, and you bearer, the one who has the phallus, and which is not to say the penis. This is a, Dave and I have long been talking about doing a discussion of the blog post I wrote on the phallus, and we're right. going to get to that post at some point. Right, but, and obviously, you know, like Cardi B performs a phallic figure of uh, you know, and, and and obviously that's not to say it's reducible to that, but how she puts a spin on the performance of having phallic power or a position, a phallic position is a part of what the, the whole act is, you know? So, um, you know, that, so obviously it's not, the, it's not literally having a penis. Um, and if we do a stream on it, hopefully like that could be, I mean, it's Lacan's birthday on, on the 14th. So it's coming up here really, really shortly. I think it's on the 14th. So, if we could yeah. do a conversation on the phallus, that would be really good because it changed everything for me. It actually put me in a in a, in a sort of for you. It's one of, for you. It's one of your favorite aspects of Lacanian theory, right? Yeah, I think that your uh, your your phallus post blew my mind. You know, and 
like, I don't have a gender theory right now because I'm still thinking through things, but uh, that article in particular really um, fucked with me. Like, I had to really reconsider a lot of things. And so, um, whether I, whether at the end of the day I turn out to, like, disagree with it or agree with it, like, I don't know, because I'm still thinking through it, you know, in the, in the same way. Yeah, in the same way that I am with a lot of things, but like it has to be thought through seriously, and so like I'm struggling with it right now. So well, if we part of it is, I think the concept of the phallus is so like Lacanians never really explain it. Like it, it was one of the most difficult concepts for me to work through in Lacanian theory, and then once it clicks, it's I don't think it's that hard to get when you if you can explain it clearly, but. I don't, they are really obscurantists when it comes to this concept and they just invoke this word and you're sitting there going, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I don't, they don't give you anything to go off of in trying to understand it. And then, I don't know, I just, it took a lot of work for me to be able to figure out what was going on with that concept. But when it clicked, it really clicked for me. And I was like, holy shit, this is important. 100%. Hundred um, percent. Delusional Bode Lacanian says, "I think April thirteenth is Lacan's birthday. That's my personal deadline for my clip and ship." Yeah, snap. You're right. It is April thirteenth. Why did I think? Why did I think it was the fourteenth? Now, see how easy that is to correct that mistake. You're not. If if only ideology was that easy. Right. Yeah. And so like that was a powerful point for that you made is that, you know, if you point out that someone is mistaken on something, but it's something like getting a date wrong, nobody's like, oh, my God, this reflects on me. This is about or like they, they don't get super defensive. I mean, if they did, that's like the stuff of that's like comedic gold. Right. Like you actually see this right. in comedies. Well, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of a comedy where it's like the person is wrong. They everyone can see that they're wrong and, but they kind of double down and they just keep going with it. And everyone's just like to the point where it's like well, ridiculous. It's funny because of, of the phallus, like the whole, okay. Simply put having the phallus or attempting to have the phallus is for you to be the exceptional person who doesn't lack. Like you're, you're ontologically complete in a way that the rest of us lacking subjects aren't. And so if somebody goes out of their way to try to conceal their lack, all it does is reveal their lack more and more. So it's a comedic, contra- it's funny because it's contradictory. Like hey. They're undermining what they're trying to accomplish. What did you do that made you sound so far away? I don't know, I'm right you're, here. Now you're back. Yeah, okay, so I don't. you got to say it again because you, you sounded really far away for a second there. No, I, all I said was this whole thing that you're talking about has to do with the phallus because the, the person who is really trying to be the, who is trying to prove they have the phallus, which means they're not an ontologically lacking subject like the rest of us. They have an ontological fullness, completeness, plenitude that the rest of us lacking subjects do not have. Right. Okay. And so, and it's precisely because they don't lack in the way that the rest of us do that, like grounds their exceptional authority, their obsessional or uh, uh, their exceptional position over us. All right. So, okay. If so, you're going out of your way to try to conceal your lack, when you make a, a mistake like that, if you go out of your way to try to conceal it, all you're doing 
is revealing your lack through your insistent neurotic attempt to not have a lack. And so it's funny and humorous because you're undermining the very thing you're trying to accomplish. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So and so, t- t- so the reason you, yeah, so it's just see if I'm right here. Uh, so the reason you brought up the phallus in the first place was you're saying that it's just the phallus is associated with the name of the father and a set of other terms that get talked about from time to time by Lacan, usually insinuated. He doesn't usually talk about it explicitly, but operating in the background that he's thinking about from, you know, throughout all of this is this metaphor of the primordial horde or whatever. And so I think you're going to say something about how that relates to the master signifier. So, yeah. So in the, 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 the myth of the primal father and the primal horde, the idea is that you have this this leader of a tribe or a group or whatever, and this exceptional father figure. He like this. He's like the purest embodiment of like the most extreme violent forms of enjoyment. There's just absolutely no restrictions on him. He can have all the women he wants. He can kill whoever he wants. He commands everybody he wants, and no one gets to say otherwise they have to follow him. And so his sons are caught in a dilemma, right? Right. Like on the one hand, they think like, Oh, we'll get power if we identify with them. But on the other hand, they're like, they feel like he castrates them because in this broader sense of the term cast, Although he can, he also this guy can literally castrate them if he feels like it. Well, you um, know, obviously, in a in like a real primal horde, then yeah, you you're you if you're not actually castrated, then you are at least symbolically by the fact that you know this person has access to all the women and or men as well if they want men as well. The and you don't. If they want men, yeah, exactly. Right. Basically, one dude gets to do everything he wants. And gets to command everybody, and they have to just grin and take it. So right? wait, are you telling me that Lacan was an incel? I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. So no, uh, but here's the thing: a lot of what we see with the whole, like, like the whole uh, the reference to Chad and the whole thing with incels. Like I've always wanted to write something on this because I know Lacanian theory can do so much with with that. And, um, right. That, that needs to have like, uh, at some point I'll write something on that, but here, long story short. Right. So this group, they kill the the father, but then they feel bad about the killing him because they all, in a sense, aspire to him. They all want to be him, but they also know that if they, if they all try to, if each one went for this exceptional position, the other ones would kill them. And so this kind of ghostly presence of the primal father is present with them. And this is what it means for law to get established in this myth. Like the law is the ghost of the primal father. And okay, all of this, and I explain all this in the post. Look, the point is part of being a masculine subject is to, is to desire and aspire to this exceptional position. This is why every guy wants to be the man 
And there's various, there's all kinds of different ways you can aspire to be the man. And so the point is, though, within the, the, the symbolic order, there's like a signifier that itself is the man, that, that, that is the exceptional one that stands out over against the rest and the others have to get organized around. Well, you, I mean, and I use this example. This is also Todd McGowan's example, but it's the go-to example because it just, it's so good. It is the, the signifier God. And you think about medieval society, right? And, and, and the philosophies that come out of the medieval ages, right? God, the signifier, not even, okay, we're not even talking about, and this is important here. We're not talking about whether or not there's an actual real God, a referent out there. That's not the point. The point is the actual signifier God, how that signifier organizes the, the symbolic universe of those societies, right? right? So you cannot challenge that signifier's position. To do so, you're going to be persecuted if you even try to challenge this authority it has, right? It, it, the master signifier, though, and here's the key, it's no, it's it, it's only exceptional because it's in this exceptional position. There's nothing about the signifier God that is in and of itself special. It's just a signifier like any other signifier. So the position it gets to occupy is what's exceptional, not the signifier itself. But, and this is the key with the master signifier, it wants to act like it's identifiable with that position. So it's it. Here's the thing. It's ultimately what we call a groundless ground. It organizes society, and it wants us to believe it organizes society because it has some privileged, exceptional status. But it doesn't. It's just groundless because in and of itself, if you take the word God and you actually subtract all other words, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have meaning outside of the other meanings. But it's it, because it wants to stand alone and it wants to be exceptional. It's, a, it's as if this meaningless signifier. It's as if it has some pure transcendental signified, some pure essential meaning, some logos that all the other ones don't. But it's all a charade. It's it's the end of Wizard of Oz, right? Like <laughs> you peek behind the curtain and you just get a normal ass signifier. That's no different than any other signifier. So, and so obviously yeah. now we live in a society that is centered around the, the you know, self-reproducing and expanding, accelerating uh, money, which would be, you know, capital. So, you know, it's profit-oriented. Um, but obviously a lot of people don't spend their lives thinking about profit. They spend their lives thinking about all kinds of other things, and but they go to work. And so obviously... The, the, their life is still kind of directed by it. Um, obviously, like in the case of the person who's, you know, trying to grow money and focusing on its reproduction, the capitalist, um, you, the person is going to be, you know, it, it really would be probably that person's master signifier. But is it also the, the master signifier for the person who doesn't spend all their time thinking about that, who, who's like a, a worker, who might be a Christian, who might be an atheist, it doesn't matter. Like, but, they, you know, they, they might feel a, a bigger, way bigger feelings about uh, something like progress or because obviously that's a master signifier for some people. Uh, or you might have, I, I don't know, 
uh, fuck BMX action sports or something, you know, but whatever it is, like, are, are these going to be, can a master signifier be like different for a different person? Is it for a community? Like, how does this work? Sure. So of course. So here's, here's where we have to ask ourselves. The question is, all right, what, and then you get into the debate. Are there multiple master signifiers or is there only one? Because it seems like there can be only one because it occupies the exceptional position. But the point is that exceptional position is what's singular. Different signifiers can occupy that position in different contexts. And so it's a weird thing. Like, yes, there can be multiple master signifiers, but there's only one exceptional position that makes a master signifier a master signifier. But here's where we, it's always at the level of the analysis we have to ask ourselves, like, what is the master signifier? So, of course, we can stand back and go, what for America is a master signifier? Okay. But then you can start asking, well, what is the master signifier for conservative Americans or for liberal Americans? And then you can ask yourself, well, what's the master signifier for Christian fundamentalists? And what's the master signifier for this group or that group? You can get more nuance with it, right? And I think it's important to do that. But it's also important to be able to stand back and just look at a symbolic order and say, like, what's the master signifier? Now, it's not always as apparent as, like, the God example is easy, right? Because it's apparent what the master signifier is. And in America, because we are, there is a certain ideological diversity we have in America that a lot of traditional societies didn't have, right? So I think in America, we can argue over what's a master signifier. I can show you a couple examples. So for, if you're like a traditional American economist, the market functions as a kind of master signifier. Hmm. Right. They, they'll appeal to it as if, oh, well, it's just the market and everything has to be organized around the market. Another one you could even say is like GDP. Like everything has like everything that we do has to be defined in terms of GDP. Mm-hmm. But again, that's close to the market at the same time. Um, it's weird. I don't think capital Capital is not a master signifier. I think, and it's interesting because capital is the central thing that organizes everything that's going on, and yet it's not a master signifier. That's an interesting dynamic. Right, but but it's it's reproduction. I mean, capital being central requires other things being centered that obfuscate capital's role, right? It's almost like I want to say the master signifier in America is capital, but what's bizarre about it is yeah but it's it's almost as if this master signifier is using misdirection in other signifiers to conceal its own position as master signifier right I mean, it's basically what people are getting at when they talk about jobs when they talk about education when they talk about um progress inequality um inflation any of these signifiers Ultimately, the reason it matters is because of capital. And then the the way that those signifiers are perceived uh, or interpreted um, by a person is going to tell you almost everything you need to know about 
what kind of media they consume, what kind of identity they've curated for themselves, etc. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, okay, I just and I, I want to say so. The the best thing I've found on basically Lacan's theory of I don't know I don't want to I don't know if I call it semiotics. McGowan calls it signification. It is Todd's video on the Lacanian concept of signification, etc. Which is just this is where he explains signifiers and all this. And so all this talk we're doing about master signifiers, we have to take a step back and realize, yeah, but there's also this thing called the quilting point. And so I mentioned that there's been a debate uh, among Lacanians. Is the quilting point the master signifier? Is the master signifier the quilting point? Now, Slavoj often identifies them. I've got quotes where I can show you where he, he'll, he'll, he acts like he's talking about the same signifier whenever he talks about master signifier and quilting point. But McGowan emphasizes emphatically, like, no, they're not the same signifier. And that we have to, for the sake of clarity, we have to keep them apart. And so, uh, so, okay. This, so, so Solomon says goodnight because it's, uh, 348 AM there. Have a good night. Yeah. And you know, just to anybody who's listening to this right now, who might be barely hanging on because you're trying to go to sleep, but you're also curious about this. Uh, or, you know, I end up doing it too, falling asleep, watching something, for trying to force myself to stay awake just so I can finish something. Just pause it, come back to it later. Click, click save in your watch later or add it to a playlist or make a reminder to come back to it. Just don't worry about it. Come back to it when you've got time. And uh, the comment section down below the permanent video is usually pretty dead compared to this live chat here where there's usually like... By the time the thing's over, it's like, right now we already have, like, a lot of comments. So, just come back to it later and comment something. Show it a little love, um, because it's just always weird when there's, like, a great video. And you go to, and people are like, oh my gosh, this was a great video, I'm thinking a lot about it. And then, and, like, people, t like, tell me that they, they just finished it or whatever. But, like, the people just don't comment. And it's totally okay, because, like, obviously you're driving places, you're listening while working or playing games. or And then, it, you know, YouTube will automatically advance to the next thing or whatever. But um, if you want to fine-tune the algorithm to force-feed you better content, the kind of stuff that is going to encourage you and inspire you um, to... To, to, to read more books and to also like develop an understanding for concepts like this, then the way to kind of tool where they're like, you could get just like concepts and just dig into them at your own speed and go through it in a way that's not just, you know, there's actually like a sort of uh, DIY, but academic uh, component to it all so that you're using these concepts for your own thinking and, and getting acquainted with them and, and the, and the, the actual works that they come from and everything like that. Like if you wish that this content was a lot better and not just existing in the form of super long live streams, um, well then that would have to also come from our freedom, whatever little of it we've secured from our passion, from our free time, from our time energy, which we don't really have. So that's, that's our sponsors is, is our, our, and so what, what can you do? Right now, you can 
for the last 24 hours of this campaign, donate to Michael's computer. So, yeah, did definitely do that. The other thing is just go to his Patreon and, you know, sign up there. So, www.patreon.com forward slash the dangerous maybe is where you'll get Michael's stuff. Um, and I'm going to drop some links below if you want to get in the last 24 hours of the the crowdfunding campaign to raise the money for Michael's computer so that he can actually make some video essays. And I know that once he's making video essays, it'll probably inspire me to get back into it. I, I almost got back into it when I discovered Teal is Bound. Eventually, something will make me get back into video essays, and I'm excited for those days. I've almost done it a bunch of times, but, you know, it's a time-energy issue, and you've got to make sacrifices and prioritize. So, anyway, bringing it all back around, we've talked about... Uh, we, we got disconnected was, was, was one of the things that happened, but we talked a little bit about Lacan's critique of ego psychology and we talked about the master signifier and you're getting into the quilting point and the yep. quilting point is not the same thing as the master signifier. Well, well maybe that's the, that's the debate. Yeah. So there we go. So, okay. Um, and here, here's the plan. I want to get through this. I actually want to quilt us on the quilting point. Oh my god! Because um, everything else is gonna, it, we're gonna need one more session or lecture uh, discussion to get through all this. But this is, this is a good point. The quilting point is a good point to po quilt us at tonight. So it works out. So it, it, I, I just want to read a quote, right? So. Okay, so this is from Sublime Object of Ideology. And then what we're going to do, I'm going to read this, and then we're going to unpack this, and then we'll start to wrap it up. Okay. So, so Slavoj is talking about how the master signifier ideologically quilts. And you're sitting there going, okay, well, that means they have to be the same thing. So let's see what he says, because this is a great example. It says, in the ideological space float signifiers like freedom, state, justice, peace. And then their chain is supplemented with some master signifier, communism, which retroactively determines their communist meaning. Now, even that is worthy of being unpacked. So, look, all of us know that we can sit here and argue ad infinitum about what the word freedom means what the word state means, what the word justice means, and what the word peace means. And we can expand these happiness, like all of these signifiers we use all the time, like tr trying to get some sort of fixed meaning on them. We can say like that in and of itself is a struggle. It's an ideological struggle struggle to even define these terms. For, for Slavoj, what makes a master signifier a master signifier is it's the exceptional signifier that imposes a consistent meaning between these various terms. Now, hmm. the word retroactively is important here because quilting point, <clears throat> especially for McGowan, we'll see this in a minute. Quilting point is the retroactive signifier. And the, the master signifier is the inaugural signifier. So here's the problem, right? If the master signifier, at least logically or ideologically, is the first signifier, the signifier that sets the ideological framework in order, 
then it also can't be the one that retroactively, after the fact, redefines things. And so, but here in this quote from Sublime Object, Slavoj is, he's identifying the two signifiers together. So let me read this again. In the ideological space float signifiers like freedom, state, justice, peace. And then their chain is supplemented with some master signifier, for example, communism, which retroactively determines their communist meaning. Freedom is effective only through surmounting bourgeois formal freedom, which is merely a form of slavery. The state is the means by which the ruling class guarantees the conditions of its rule. Market right. exchange cannot be just and equitable because the very form of equivalent exchange between labor and capital implies exploitation. War is inherent to class society as such. Only the socialist revolution can bring about lasting peace and so forth. So what you see right here is when you impose the word communism on these four other words, that signifier fixes all of their meanings into a kind of consistent chain. So freedom, state, justice, peace, they all take on determinate meanings which are consistent with one another precisely because this other signifier has come in and anchored their meanings, right? And so then he goes on to say, liberal democratic quilting would, of course, produce quite different articulation of meaning. Conservative quilting, a meaning opposed to both previous fields and so on. So here he, he is identifying the master signifier with quilting, which is to say the quilting point. Rip, and can, I, that, can I just, can I, I've always wondered this, is, is the metaphor that a blanket's being thrown over a bunch of things, or is it that there's like a needle and thread making a blanket? No, it's not a blanket so much as a pillow. So the, the actual point de capiton, which is the French term for quilting point, it actually refers to a quilting button. So if, if you look at older pillows, the, the, the function of the quilting point in the pillow is to make it where the stuffing in the pillow remains evenly distributed and doesn't lump up. It's a way of keeping the pillow organized and symmetrical. Right? What the f really? Oh, Instead that's of, good to know. Yeah. So it keeps the stuffing from sliding all over the place and getting lumped up. Okay. And so Lacan took this image and he it's funny. Lacan only talks about the quilting point a few spots in his work. Although it's it's like one of his most important ideas at the same time. It's crazy. Even the whole idea, like I said, the short session is really the idea of the quilting point. Um but which he is really developed in seminar 3 and that's the main spot if you're interested in what he has to say about the quilting point and yeah, he gets it from actual quilting from actual you know the, the making of blankets and, uh, and and primarily pillows but okay yeah it's just a button that holds things together so in the case of communism communism versus liberalism depending on which which is the master signifier of the ideological system it's obviously going to fundamentally change the meanings of freedom state justice peace as well as obviously Fascism would also do the same. So 
you've got communism, fascism, liberalism. You know, it's the only three uh, political theories, and and they're yeah, the. But, but here's the thing: let's I'm, expand it. I'm I'm memeing. I'm memeing because because that's what Dugan says. I'm just memeing. But yeah, oh, okay. well, communism, liberal. Because obviously that's not the only three ideologies, but for for him it is. You know, so there we go. Think think what happens if you take just let's do this little practice here. You take the, the the words freedom, state, justice, peace. All right, now put over and above those for Buddhism, and see what you get. Like how how is Buddhism gonna right. quilt or organize these four other signifiers? Well, okay, now let's switch out Buddhism for Christianity. Right. How's Christianity gonna do it? Now here's a here's another thing. What happens if instead of using a religion or a political uh, political, I hate to say ideology, but uh, a form of politics. What if we put science over? Oh the yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So, or what if we, what if we, opt out of using science and instead we quilt them with love? Oh God! Like the point is, you get drastically different formations of how these terms would fit together. If you impose a different signifier as their organizing principle. Right. And I mean, to, a lot of the time, I'm, I'm sure it's like for you, you it, it can be hard to imagine how some of the things we're talking about might be useful in the future once you get your head wrapped around them when it comes to doing like ideology critique. But uh, this seems like most immediately applicable and easy in the sense that. It's a thought exercise that you can start to do all the time. Anytime you hear someone espousing some explicit ideology, especially, it's it becomes especially fun to be thinking, so yeah, how are these terms operating in this, uh, if for, for this, so, you know, freedom, state, justice, peace, for instance, you know, there might be other big, you know, I think accountability and community and uh, and a trauma um, are all obviously like big, big in, in therapy culture and influencer culture online. Um, well, how are these kinds? Of, what are the what are the words? What are the little networks of signifiers that people keep coming back to that are seemingly uh, held together or structured in the way that they are in relation to some other bigger you know concept like. Uh, progress or tradition or Christianity or science or whatever. These are obviously just like, yeah, good uh, field work for everybody. There's your assignment. This is your call to action. Be paying attention to the words that have a certain kind of cachet for you or for others in a social situation or scene uh, or culture. Um, and and be paying attention to, to the way that, that these are all quilted by whatever it is, whatever is their master signifier. What is their master signifier? You know, is, is always yeah. interesting question. So, and so, okay, let me read this real quick. So <clears throat> the master signifier is quote, self-referential pathological performative operation. That quote is from sublime object of ideology. Again, it's self-referential insofar as it only justifies itself through referencing itself. Again, the signifier God, which is I'm going to keep using it because it's the best example. 
that signifier, and again, we're not talking about God himself or a referent or anything, just in that symbolic universe, that signifier, it, it, it authorizes itself through a reference to itself. Like, no, there's no, I, I'm not giving you some further justification. I am like, that's what, I mean, that's almost like in the Bible, God does it. I am that I am. Right. Mask off. Right. Like I get this because I get this. Right. And when it, law is tautological, like law itself, like why obey me? Because you obey me. Right. It doesn't appeal to anything else. It appeals to itself, which I mean, in a sense, it shows that there's a problem there, but nonetheless, it appeals to itself. The appeal to itself is a trick because it's saying I have in me a greater power than any of you. So therefore you have to obey me. Don't make me show my power. Of course, there is no power. It's a bluff. But, uh, but as long as people, uh, but as long as people believe in it, then it still carries that force. And then today, obviously, you know, it, it would be, you know, kind of, oh no, now it's you know, it's it's democracy, right? So mm-hmm. so the justification, the thing about uh, systems outside of liberalism is that they just say it's just it's power. It's just power. Um, it just it, and it and it it's self it's self legitimating, self justifying power. Um, liberalism says, no, it's not. It's actually, it has to answer to the people. It's accountable. Um, it can be made accountable. Um, power, because it can absolutely corrupt or its tendency to corruption, uh, it needs to be, you know, set set within the context of checks and balances that will disrupt it from accruing, you know, blah, 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 blah. But this is a legitimation narrative for power doing what it's doing. It's still doing what it's doing. It's always been doing what it's doing. And we're not going to be, you know, we're not saying, oh, it's just as bad as it's, as it's always been, you know, for us in this society at this moment. But obviously our society as it exists in this moment relies on a lot of exploitation and expropriation and oppression and all these things. So, yeah. So, yeah. And so this, this whole like self, self-referential grounding or that, and I mean, we can talk, call it self-referential or topological. It's also perfor- a performative operation, Zizek says, but it's performative in the sense of like J.L. Austin's how to do things with words and his concept of performative utterances. It's like how when when the, the, the minister or the priest says, I pronounce the husband and wife, like the pronunciation is what makes them married. Right. Well, for the master signifier, its own assertion of its exceptional status is what gives it its exceptional status. And so in that sense, it's a performative utterance. Like it brings itself into its own exceptionality by asserting its exceptional status. Right. And so, okay. so what does this mean? The master signifier, which is also Lacan refers to as S1 is self-referential insofar as it imposes itself on the field of free-floating signifiers, which is S2. So we haven't talked about this much, and I don't use this terminology that often, but the master signifier is S2. All of the other signifiers is called S, or I'm sorry, the master signifier is S1, and all of the other signifiers get called S2. Now, S2 is also referred to as knowledge. 
and it, we, it's all other signifiers. Lacan calls it the battery of signifiers. But, yeah, it's, it's really that simple. So the master signifier, S1, is self-referential insofar as it imposes itself on the field of free-floating signifiers, S2, with a reference to itself. So it's like the master signifier says, it is so because I say it is so. This is the phallic dimension of it. The master signifier gets its power and hegemony through positioning itself in the exceptional position of the master. Primal father, the exceptional one. One with a capital O. The master signifier is tautological in the exact same way as the law itself is. It justifies itself with nothing more than a reference to itself. It is ultimately a groundless ground, but one that ideologically asserts itself as an absolute ground. It's also performative in the sense of how its truth is grounded by nothing besides its own violent assertion and forced imposition. That is, it's a non-founded founding violence, as Zizek puts it. And the master signifier says it's my way or the highway. Why? Because I say so, motherfucker. Like, it's... And it's weird to talk about, like, a signifier talking, but that's... It dramatizes what is going on there. Well, an, so, an, obvious, an obvious example would be when you are in a social situation and you become aware of the fact that that something is kind of beyond question and to question that thing is to expose yourself as an outsider